Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. Here I have long, informal conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK, and this podcast is basically my way to show my appreciation for being in such a privileged position, for having uh, access to so many great people to talk to. I wanted to give my colleagues a chance to tell stories about their science and, well, not just stories, but to have conversations about their science and about their lives and what that looks like from their perspective. I mean, what doing science looks like from their perspective. So this week, I was really pleased to talk with Dr. Michelle Kane. Uh, Michelle and I have known each other for a while. We overlapped for a good several years in Cambridge, and we both uh, served as coordinators for this Cambridge Center for Climate Science, which is a Cambridge-wide network of different departments and institutes that uh, whose work intersects, you know, overlaps with climate in some way. So um, these days, she is at the Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford, working as a science and policy research associate. So that's a very interesting position that's been uh, that's different from her uh, previous role, which have been. Uh, more just purely scientific driven, whereas this is a position that sits at that interesting boundary, that inter interesting interface between science and then uh, what policymakers, how policymakers ingest and use the science that's done to inform their decisions and pathways. Um, Michelle is one of the first people that I talked with about the podcast, so it was really nice to get a chance to talk with her for a while, and uh, we've been planning it for a long time. Um, so yeah, let me just say a little bit up top here about Michelle and her work. Um, she is an expert in air pollution, greenhouse gases, and climate science. And, uh, she did a lot of that work, uh, on, she works on methane in particular and has done a lot of work on methane, uh, during her time at the University of Cambridge. Um, yeah, so I mentioned that she was the coordinator for this Cambridge Center for Climate Science um, saying already, you can find her on Twitter, of course. Uh, her handle is Civil Talker, so C I V I L and then Talker. Um, yeah. I also thought it might be worth saying a few words about methane here at the top, just some really basic introductory information about methane, um, partly for my benefit, because I have fun researching these things and refreshing my memory uh, as I'm recording some of these intros. Um, I know I, I'm kind of inconsistent. Sometimes I talk a lot. Sometimes I don't talk that much. But, well, hey, if you want to skip this, you can skip to the music, right? That's what the music is for. That's how you know when the actual interview starts. Yeah, so the methane molecule is really simple. It's four hydrogen atoms around a single carbon atom. And the uh, that makes it a really simple, well, it makes it the simplest hydrocarbon. Uh, it Methane also doesn't take up very much of the atmosphere. It only takes up about uh, 0.0005%. And uh, in 2011, the concentration measured at uh, 1.8 parts per million, whereas carbon dioxide, for comparison, uh, is a bit is, is around uh, 400 parts per million right now. It's a little bit larger than 400 parts per million right now. So it's uh, so there isn't that much of it in the atmosphere. Um, but despite being really simple as a molecule and having a really low relative concentration, methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. Um, 
I'm going to use this metric, the global warming potential, which Michelle and I uh, actually talk about in great detail because it turns out that the traditional metric that uh, has been used over the years for global warming potential, it has some serious limitations and it has some uh, unfortunate kind of conceptual difficulties associated with it. So uh, Michelle, as part of this larger collaboration, um, did a lot of work on GWP star, which is an updated version of this concept that's uh, much more suitable for temperature projections and uh, other applications like that. So I'll let uh, I'll let Dr. Kane explain all of that, you know, in the actual interview. But I just wanted to give you a heads up. But if you do use the older metric, the GWP global warming potential metric. On a 20-year time frame, methane has a global warming potential of about a hundred times uh, that's about a hundred times greater than that of carbon dioxide. So, molecule per molecule, methane is a much more effective greenhouse gas in terms of its ability to absorb infrared radiation from the surface and to radiate thermal energy back down to the surface of the Earth, um, where that energy then you know can warm up surface temperatures, it can go into the ocean, it can go into the land, and it can kick off a lot of different processes. Where does methane come from? Well, major natural sources of methane, uh, they include emissions from wetlands. You can get some from the ocean as well. Uh, from the digestive processes of termites, which we didn't really talk about that, but um, I, I've, in my reading for this intro, I found a little bit about how methane is produced by termites. Uh, that's one of the possible sources. Uh, sources related to human activities include rice production, landfills, raising cattle, um, cow burps, uh, cow uh, farts, you know, they release methane into the into the atmosphere, which Michelle and I uh, do talk about a bit. And uh, some, some methane is produced in energy generation as well. Yeah, so the concentrations. The concentration of methane has risen by about 150% since 1750. Um, you know, apparently largely due to, to human activities. Um, and at the moment, methane accounts for about 20% of the heating effects by all of the greenhouse gases combined. So it uh, is it's a huge contributor to the total extra energy that's getting radiated down here to, at the surface by greenhouse gases. Yeah, so this is, without a doubt, one of the longest episodes, and that's amazing. It was, uh, I really enjoyed our conversation we covered so many different topics and went down uh, so many different threads. And uh, I just, just had a great time talking with Dr. Kane, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, life and science, some about personal stuff, about methane, um, just so many things. And it, it kind of goes back and forth between you know personal and professional. So those, are, those kind of topics of conversation are kind of weaved you know, throughout the whole thing. Again, you can find Dr. Kane at Civil Talker on Twitter. And, of course, you can look her up on the Oxford Martin School website and uh, where you can find some videos that she's recorded, some, um, some outreach videos answering questions about the global warming potential paper. Yeah, since we talked about it so much, maybe I should mention the paper. So the paper is by Alan et al., and Michelle Kane is on that list in 2018. It's called A Solution to the Misrepresentations of CO2-equivalent emissions of short-lived climate pollutants under ambitious mitigation. And uh, that appears in... And that appears in the Nature Partner Journal Climate and Atmospheric Science. Um, 
article number 16 if you need that, although the title and the author should be enough. Okay, well, I hope you enjoy this conversation again between Dr. Michelle Kane and myself. Let's go ahead and get right into it. Here we go. To, to come actually after like having talked to you about it before and you know I actually I've, I've never been on a podcast before never done one yeah. never never got involved but I, just li- I listen to loads so well some yeah so, so it's kind of an interesting new format different format yeah 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 no I've I've had um the I've listened to way too many of them over the years just like washing dishes and stuff and yeah and this is at some point I started thinking I should just I should just try one of these I should just do one of these and I'm sure that you know there's there's a million other folks who have also had the same idea which is fine I mean I think it's great we have we have a podcast for every possible small niche interest and I think that's amazing like I don't think there's any reason you, you no longer have to you know when you're doing media you like you no longer have to think about oh, how do I make this appeal to the widest yeah, possible yeah, audience and, exactly. and cast the biggest possible net. You can just go for no. The, the, there's going to be a small set mm. of people who want this specific thing. You kind of do a Copernican principle thing where you're like, uh, well, I, I'm not that weird, right? I'm not. <laughs> I'm not really the center of the universe or some <laughs> super bizarre. Like I'm. I'm probably more average than I think I am. So if I like something. Chances yeah. are there's going to be other folks who will, will also yeah. like that thing. Yeah. 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 I think so. Yeah. And I do like, like, what's kind of interesting about podcasts is they are, like, different to other forms of radio <laughs> and th- such, which I wouldn't have, I didn't know until I started listening to them. Yeah. You know, and they are a bit different. And I think it's because of that, because they're not trying to appeal to... Uh, a radio audience yeah. even though you think at first well what how is it different from radio yeah. and obviously there are <laughs> radio shows that are made into podcasts mm. um but it's it's just nice to have something a bit different and that yeah. is does tend to be longer and more rambly like. oh yeah for sure no, i'll admit i get a little uh it, it sounds silly and it is silly but that's fine i get a little annoyed when i listen to a new podcast if it's too radio like it's too right. super produced with little, yeah. lots of little segments and stuff and yeah i get a Unless it's Radio Lab, because Radio Lab is a very specific, you know, vehicle. I haven't heard um, that one. Yeah, no, they they do super polished, really well done, you know, science stories. Okay. And, um, but I guess the stuff that I usually like to listen to, I I just like to listen to people talk. Yeah. So there's one that I was, I was listening to one in the car on the way here. So unlike David Marshall, I didn't cycle all the way right. here. Yeah. Well, that's um, pretty tough. That's a that's. A, I can't believe he did yeah. that actually. Yeah. <laughs> It's so like hard. That's quite epic. He must be uh, like a, a, a dedicated cyclist, I guess, um, yeah. to do that. I think he would like to be, and he's heading in that direction. And yeah. that's a pretty big step in that direction. Yeah. That? <laughs> no, that's great. I did I did contemplate getting the well, I would have got the bus if I could, but I couldn't get here in time, and I couldn't get back home in time and stuff. So, yeah. like, that's an interesting topic, actually, for me, because, like... I work on greenhouse gases yeah. and climate and stuff, but even myself, I can't stop using the car. Yeah, <laughs> because it's just right. not practical. And until until people like us can make the decision 
within their lives and within their commitments to not burn fossil fuels, then they're just going to keep doing it. Right, mm. it's just impossible. Like we've got one electric car, but we can't afford two um, yeah. at the moment. So. Yeah, it's still expensive, right? Well, and even in a country like this one with, with, in my perception, pretty good public transit, you know, mm. relative to basically not having oh, yeah. the option. Yeah. You, even here, yeah, often you just you do need your, your car. Like, yeah. you know, often there's not a good option for getting... Yeah, well, I could have got here feet. quite easily on the bus. It just takes longer. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'd be prepared to pay. It probably costs a little bit more to get the bus, but yeah. that's fine for me. But it just takes a bit longer. And to do nursery drop-off and to get here, yeah. that wouldn't have happened. That's right. Um, and then I wouldn't be able to get back in time for you, dinner. So you need more room in your schedule to be Yeah, to... so if you're flexible, I guess you need that much, enough flexibility to go for the public transport options when it comes to yeah. the bus anyway because the bus is always slower yeah. than driving really and i think about these the, distances the academics in australia like you know they they have to fly sometimes mm. otherwise they're just going to be totally you know yeah. going to be isolated down there yeah. they have to fly they have to fly long distances to get yeah. to um you know to get to other places that are maybe more geographically connected i mean yeah. i think i think they do fine but mm. it's just I, it, it, it must be. It would be really hard to try to be an academic down there and to just stay local and to not fly every now and then. Yeah, yeah, it really would. So it's kind of a complicated, you know, area when climate scientists are find. You know, you you know that you want to be as green as possible and limit your CO two emissions, but it's not always easy unless you're to compromise on other stuff. And, yeah, you know, that's right. Well, and especially if you're not like in a, in a permanent position, you know, if you're still early career and you're still like, mm-hmm. I have, you know, if you have to get out there and make some yeah. kind of name for yourself and make yeah. your reputation, there's no way around traveling. Yeah. Like you're not going to really be able exactly. to do that very well just sitting in the same place. Yeah. You can do okay, maybe, but I don't know if you can get a permanent job if you never go to yeah. conferences and never go visit other places. Yeah, I, I don't know. that's right. Yeah, it's tricky. So the the power that in that sense the power balance is not in our not in an early career person's favor. Yeah, know, yeah, um, yeah. No, so I've got I got sidetracked, but I was about mm. to mention a, I was listening to the Energy Transition Show on the way here, which oh, yeah. is a really good podcast. Which mm. is a it's a bit I don't know if you heard of it. Please don't plug other podcasts. <laughs> but it's okay. it's nice because it's um, it is a little bit produced and then they got a news section at the end okay. um and actually they you have to subscribe to get the full edition but i just listened to it free hmm. um but they just have a, a a long chat that is there are discussion points because there's a particular topic that the, the presenter is talking to someone about a particular you know special topic like renewable energy or carbon markets or something like this but it's really nice because it's just sounds like a conversation yeah and so you know it's really you know it's just like they're chatting there's a few questions but they just goes on whichever direction yeah i I don't know and i think that's more a more normal mode for like how humans are used to processing information it's so it's so nice to listen to um so even for a topic that is basically you know i'm listening to it out of uh interest more from my work perspective and from a personal perspective but it's not like a comedy one or just a you know a general chit chat one so it's a really nice way of presenting information that can be quite technical actually um, much easier than 
reading a long report on carbon markets or something. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we were talking about conferences to connect the two bits we were just talking about. One of the biggest benefits of conferences is you get to go hear people talk mm. about their work in a, in a little bit more relaxed way. Like if you have a chat mm. with them about, yeah. so what did you do? What did that look like? All of the formal language is all kind of stripped away. The, the, mm. how, like we have to be really careful when we're writing papers and giving big talks and stuff, right? Because we have to make sure we put the caveats out there that need to be there and put all the assumptions you know, mm. on the table that need to be on the table. Um, but if you're just having a talk with another scientist, you can be a little more relaxed and you, you don't have to couch everything in terms of, yeah. well, if you look at these, if you satisfy these seven really specific conditions, you, you can be more like, you know, oh yeah, if you, if you increase the wind stress down here, you know, the gyre spins up and it, you yeah. can just be a, a little more looser with your descriptions of yeah. things. And yeah. it, it's way easier for me anyway to, to ingest that information yeah. than it is to even read an abstract sometimes. You know, even abstracts can mm. be too technical. Yeah. Um, it, even for me, even for oceanography papers, and I'm an oceanographer, <laughs> you know, they can be sometimes a bit like, well, okay. No, like, it's true. Know. Like, when you have ten clauses in your sentence, mm. it's not easy to uh, kind of process the, all the information That's all right. at once. That's right. And we're not necessarily great writers either. We're not necessarily very good at that. <laughs> I think, from my perspective, is... Um, you have to spend more time to write something that's easy to understand mm. uh, and not we don't always have the time to write so you know I fully appreciate uh, nowadays I kind of appreciate poorly written <laughs> abstracts mm. because if you've written it at, at the 11th hour just because you want to get one in before the deadline uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah do folks read conference abstracts very much, you think? I'm not sure. If, not if, really. If so do. exactly. So you don't yeah. need to worry too much <laughs> about, you know, it being this perfect bit of yeah. communicating your results because, you know, it's just to get you into the conference yeah. and then people aren't going to read it afterwards, uh, really. I mean, I think people, um, a couple of thoughts just popped up in my head. One, I'm, I'm convening, a, I'm a co-convener on an EGU session, so... AGU uh, or EGU? EGU, EGU. Yeah, the, the European one in, yeah. in Vienna. So I should say, um, we should write good abstracts, right? I don't want to, you yeah, know, oh, it yeah, be hard should. to sort through. For the, maybe it's just for the convener's benefit so they can yeah. figure out what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. But I know, but like, maybe other than the conveners, maybe that maybe everybody attending isn't really, you know, reading I mean, actually, much, I suppose you look, it depends on... You know, if there's just one session that you know you want to go to, you just oh, go to it, no yeah, problem. Yeah. But if you're That's picking true. and choosing between sessions, actually, sometimes I'll look in detail at the abstracts mm. and try and figure out which session I want to be in because mm. of the conference like EGU. There's always sessions on at the same time that are both interesting for yeah. you. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't matter so much at a small conference where there's only one session obviously or two or three mm -hmm. but when there's like 10 going on at once um yeah. there's always some overlap but yeah i think you're i think you're right i think people look at the session names and they might look at titles they might they might look at people you know especially if they know some of the folks mm. in the field but probably they don't look at the abstracts really that much uh, except in specific cases like you were mentioning yeah. if you're trying to make a fine-grained decision between yeah one thing one and sometimes it's futile uh, mm. <laughs> with the the 
given you have to get submit your abstracts like before Christmas, Fiji, is that right? It's just after. It's like January. Yeah. It's really it's super early January. So. Yeah. So in, if you, you know, you're sort of four or five months ahead of your talk. Yeah. So there's often a bit of a difference anyway. Yeah. You can, you can promise to deliver, you know. <laughs> I'm going to solve this and that. And then you give the talk and it's completely different and you haven't done any of those things. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's what past me thought I was going to do, but past me was overambitious. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Mm. I have taken to, well, because I've changed jobs about a year ago, now with my new job, I guess, the abstracts that I'm submitting or things that I'm talking about are more are less ambitious because I guess mm. you can't uh, you, you don't want to overstretch when you're starting on something new yeah maybe so and we've made some quite rapid progress so I can happy to just be talking about stuff that is already in existence yeah. <laughs> oh, which is which is a safer way of doing things. and you're kind of so. working on this policy interface now too right so yeah. if you know you might potentially have policy interested people coming you probably don't want to yeah promise right so and partly that's why i think it's changed a little bit because you want to be talking about stuff that is published science Mm -hmm. normally Mm -hmm. um or very close to being published science i suppose because that you know they're not interested in some potential new development they only really care about what's already out there right yeah yeah so that's you have to think about your audience and your potential mm. audience yeah, yeah. when you're writing the abstract and the talk and yeah that, that makes sense yeah so what what have you been up to like this week and recently what have you been uh, well um trying to write papers yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> that's supposed to be number one but somehow it kind of doesn't always end up being on the top of the list no um <laughs> and well, there's been so it's been fellowship season, right? Yeah, <laughs> and proposal like deadline season. So very many proposals to be working on and submitting. Yeah. So that seems to be primarily why the papers haven't been written. Yeah, well, you as can't, quickly as <laughs> you can't do everything. You have to pick. You know, your effort yeah. has to be spread. Yeah. Like there, there's, there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think especially before I had, uh, uh, I was going to say kids, but I only have one. Before I had, you know, a, a kid, it was easy for me to kind of pretend like, oh, I'll just work mm. more. Mm. I could fall into that, which is, I was lying to myself, you know, at the time. But it was easier <laughs> to believe that fantasy of like, yeah. oh, I'll just put in more hours. And you, you have. And I tell you, you know, it doesn't work because you know, I did do some... Uh, like a so in Oxford we can I don't know if it's the same in Cambridge or Bass or other places but you can do up to 30 days consultancy um, if you want to like on top of your job and I did a bit of consultancy and the deadline was really short and it was just before summer holidays and it was like just I was I felt a bit like a robot just Mm. working in the evenings until midnight or whatever just trying to squeeze it in uh, and it was just okay. That is not sustainable. You you can't do extra work on top of your normal work. I don't know how people do it if they mm. really do work these, whatever like seventy hour weeks or 
something. Like, it's just yeah crazy. Like, I did it for a week, and it was just awful. Because you, you become less efficient. Right? Well, I, I, I feel like I was lucky because... Um, my my partner just took on all the household responsibilities mm. and I literally just worked like a robot. Yeah. And, you know, it worked out okay, but at the end I was just like, that is not fun. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, I like working, but the, the, like you said, there's only so many hours in the day and if you're working all day and then just sleeping, <laughs> mm. it's not really much of a life anymore no. um, you know not when you've got family so it was that was my little experience of what it's like to burn the candle at both ends yeah. like seriously because we really didn't want to you know you don't really want to miss deadlines and stuff that you've promised um, and we'd already tried to stretch it as late as possible so that we could try and fit it in um, hmm. so yeah, yeah. That, that reminds me of like a it's kind of a fluffy concept, but I like it fluffy in that it's not really quantifiable, but I think it's useful. Um, this concept is soul points. So, like, you were spending more soul points than you were gathering. Yeah. Right? So, like, yeah. If, if. Yeah, you were just going to crash it. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you have a balance of soul points, right? And then whatever you're doing, you know, if you, you know, just like any other balance, you know, energy balance or bank mm. account balance, yeah. if you are spending more soul points than you're getting then mm. yeah you're gonna you're gonna crash something bad's gonna happen yeah so you need to get go the other way before you run out of soul points yeah. to expend so you might you know a person might be able to work 70 hour weeks if whatever they're doing really is you know filling them like if they're getting yeah. those kind of soul points from that activity mm. um yeah but you know it's it's rare to find something that you can really plug into that that will that you can work that hard at that, that yeah. is constantly kind of replenishing you. I think you, you have to take a break, especially if you have, if you have a family, like you, yeah. you have to reconnect with them. Yeah. I and mean, that's part definitely. of, you know, speaking for myself, I mean, that's part of where you get some of your, mm. you know, your soul points from is, yeah. you know, spending time with your family and recharging in that way. Yeah. And temp- tempting as it is to, uh, you know, working camp, you know, if you enjoy your work, um, and you know, you're gaining something from it and you're getting towards your goal, it is tempting to work longer. Hmm just to get things done and to get ahead of things and you know at this point you know when you're not an established you know you don't have a full-time job you you know that there's this goal that you're trying to you know it's you know if you frame it in the same way so you, you're amassing different kinds of points like um mm. you know work related points or uh some kind of currency yeah, in the credibility credi- scientific, <laughs> scientific points scientific or, currency um right. you know right. so you know you have to do a certain amount to get that job that you want or yeah. whatever mm. so that's playing a different game and so you don't know what the right know, amount is and you don't know <laughs> yes and different act different things give you different numbers of points it's not just by number of hours mm. right so mm-hmm. doing different kind of jobs within work gives you different amounts of scientific kudos so you kind of it can be tempting to try and get ahead on those points at the expense of like family points especially as parenting a like a preschooler is actually harder than being a scientist oh yeah so so, you know it's exhausting (laughs) actually it's it's really more intense in terms of just like it's on constantly it's on and yeah there's 
you know, there's no downtime really. It's just it just goes. And yeah, it really <laughs> hurts my brain. <laughs> like climate science, not a problem. <laughs> Toddler, Toddler oh, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, it's just always on. Yeah, that's exactly it. You can't have a moment's peace. <laughs> yeah, and it can. Also, I mean, it can obviously be like amazing. Oh but... yeah, yeah. It's so um, fun when it's fun. <laughs> you know? mm. You get, the ex- you get extremes, don't high, you? Yeah, yeah the highs and lows. It's super fun, but super intense. And when it, yeah, when it's not fun, it's really not fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, also when they're, that, <clears throat> when they're that young, I don't know, for me, I guess I was... I didn't know where it was going, you know what I mean? And I guess that's always true with your kid. You don't, like, okay, yeah. how, how bad is... You know, like temper tantrums or like whatever. Yeah, like how yeah, bad, exactly. Where is this going? How bad is this going to get? Yeah, I, is this I don't normal know. also, or is this mm. a problem? You know? Yeah, or yeah, where does this? If there's some distribution of frequency mm. and intensity yeah. of uh, temper tantrums, where does this fall? And do I need yeah. to make adjustments in what particular yeah. direction? So it's you're not only dealing with the anger or whatever you're dealing with in the that moment you're also running a program in your head about like are there long-term adjustments that i need to make to help my kid yeah well hopefully you you are or sometimes you like lose track of that for a bit because you're so busy or tired Hmm. and then suddenly you're like okay we do need to make adjustments because we haven't been that's not been on the Hmm. radar enough and that's kind of get back on track yeah that's true you can get really focused on just the short term just surviving and making it through every day and you lose track of the longer term Um, so sometimes when I say I'm running that program in my head I just mean I'm anxious about it somewhere in my head yeah right but I'm not necessarily making productive (laughs) like having productive thoughts about oh we should do this sometimes I'm just going somewhere in my brain there's a little corner of anxiety (laughs) going like where's this going where's this going where's this going oh no yeah um but that's uh, that's my own that's my own brain. I've got a, a my, my uh, brain is really good at generating anxiety for no reason, and you know like mm. uh, and it just just kind of out of nowhere. And you you can use it. You know, mm. I I don't think it's a good long term strategy, but you know you can use it as like a motivator. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can harness that anxiety. Yeah, um, but it's not a great solution for no, long term so, like, stability. If I like this morning, actually, I. Zoe woke me up at like five in the morning because her blanket fell off or whatever. Anyway, I put her back to bed and and then I was wide awake for some reason. Normally, I'm so tired, I just go straight back to sleep. Mm. But I was wide awake and I think it was possibly because just because I, you know, you have a few things you know you need to do and you want to get them done. And so I was thinking I could get up now and just do them mm. and just then go ahead. you know yeah. just get on with it because you're already awake. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I just thought. I need sleep more than I need to get those things done at mm. five in the, in the morning. Yeah. So I uh, didn't get up. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and made myself, uh, you know, well, I did fall back asleep in the end after I don't know how long. But. Yeah. I was, I was listening to this uh, Ologies podcast um, mm-hmm. to, to break my own uh, joke rule about not plugging the <laughs> podcast, but Ologies is, uh, is a nice uh, relaxed science podcast as well. Okay. And, um, they, uh, they were, Ellie Ward, the host, was interviewing a sleep expert, and mm-hmm. the sleep doctor said that, you know, even if you're just lying down and awake and resting, yeah. he's like, that's still pretty good. 
for yeah. you. Like if you, that's still better than, you know, getting up and trying to do a hundred things when you mm. wake up at four in the morning. Yeah. You know, that if you just try to lie there and relax and try to, you know, let your mind wander. Yeah. You know, that, that is at least some kind of recharge it's, for you. Yeah. So his advice about, you know, if you can't sleep, you know, if you can try not to freak out because it, it is yeah. okay. Like if you, you don't, and it's not like you have to get the seven or eight hours of deep mm. sleep. It's, it's, it's important for you, but it's more, yeah. you know, he's saying, don't, don't let the anxiety about, oh no, I'm missing yeah. sleep. Keep you keep from you like, awake. keep you awake. <laughs> just try to, try to rest and, and be confident and like, well, even just resting is pretty yeah. good for you. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my, I'm glad that's from a, a proper sleep doctor. Cause that was my <laughs> philosophy this morning. Yeah. Uh, when mm. I thought. My brain was like, oh, you can get up and do all that work. Then you can go swimming at six o'clock uh, <laughs> and then you can still be back for like seven o'clock and, you know, and get on with your normal stuff. Yeah. And luckily, that part of my brain didn't win. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd probably be half asleep now. It can be nice to be that intense for a day or two, like for like a short, like a really yeah. focused burst, but you can't, you can't keep it going very long. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do have a... I have been wanting to start going swimming in the mornings um, again for a while, but you never, it's always difficult to start a new habit, isn't it? Like, it's all right if it's something you already do, you can just keep up with it and it's part of the routine. Mm-hmm. But, um, like, I, d- I went a few times in the summer, but I haven't managed to maintain it because, you know, one thing happens, another thing happens, you're away, you got a cold, I've got a cold now, mm-hmm. and, like, you know. There's always an excuse to not get up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm actually, I'm not that familiar with, you know, the the work world that you found yourself in. Mm, um, it's a bit different from yeah. what I was doing in Cambridge. That's right. Um, so you're at this Oxford Martin School? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm funded there um, on the Oxford Martin Programme on Climate Pollutants, but I don't, so... Most of the researchers that are funded by research at the Institute are in other parts of the university, actually. Mm. So there's only a f- relatively few number of researchers who actually work in that building physically because um, they fund a lot of interdisciplinary research. So their programmes are designed to be for research that's not doesn't fall under traditional research um, funding, so it may be interdisciplinary mm-hmm. um, in most cases, but also it can be, well, they want it to address kind of grand challenges. So climate change is, you know, I think yeah. probably anything to do with climate change probably counts, but things like the future of food or cyber security, lots of things that are quite current or topical. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they see as big challenges. So um, I actually sit in the Environmental Change Institute, which is part of the Department of Geography um, and well, the School of Geography and the Environment. Um, so that's more where I am based. Um, and the work is about mostly I will work on. So I was working on methane in Cambridge, right. and that's the yep. thread. So I still work on methane a lot because I know most about methane. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's more now about the climate impacts of methane. Um, and in particular, um, 
about how you compare methane with other greenhouse gases or, or compare non-CO2 greenhouse gases with CO2 because that's something that people do a lot, especially in the policy world or in, in other disciplines that try and assess like greenhouse gas footprints and stuff like that. Yeah, because there are tons of different mm-hmm. species of, that, that yeah. count as greenhouse gases. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so typical methods just use essentially an exchange rate saying methane is worth 28 tonnes of CO2 or or, one tonne of methane is worth 28 tonnes of CO2 or 21 tonnes of CO2 or 25 tonnes of CO2. But they have different resonance times in the atmosphere. Right. right? You know, they have different amounts of time, but the different molecules have different amounts of like how long they tend to stay in the atmosphere where they can be uh, active in terms of absorbing and and emitting radiation. Exactly, yeah. And that's the reason why that kind of exchange rate mechanism uh, is flawed and pretty seriously flawed for something like methane, um, which has... So it's... it's, The technical term is perturbation lifetime is about 12 years um, and that is like an e-folding time. So if you chuck a load of methane into the atmosphere, um, it's on top of what's already in the atmosphere. Um, its e-folding time um, is about 12 years. And that's the amount of time it will kind of stay in the atmosphere, so it gets absorbed yeah, so again? The, it's, so it reacts with um, the hydroxyl radical. Um, that's the main sink. So it's a chemical reaction, which oh, this OH. hydro... OH, yeah. OH, it's in the daytime atmosphere. There's more of it where it's sunny. Um because it's photochemically produced. So it's it's a chemical loss process. That's the main sink. Um, and the essentially it's the time that in 12 years, the, that, that sort of truckload of methane you put into the atmosphere goes down to one over E of its uh, original amount in 12 years. Or, so, so its half-life is about a decade, roughly. Yeah. So about half of it remains after about a decade, roughly. So the methane combines with OH and becomes a chemical that is not well, it, a greenhouse Well, it ends gas. up as CO2. Okay. Um, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Double bad. But because there's, like, there's about 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere and there's only about two parts per million of methane in the right. atmosphere. Yeah. So even if all the methane descend to CO2, it would make a quite a small difference on CO2. Mm. Um, and in fact, that's maybe in, in a, from a climate perspective, that might be preferable because methane yeah. has a yeah. bigger... It, it, it's per, more reasonably per, efficient. Yeah. yeah so yeah. if you look at molecule per molecule mm-hmm. in the atmosphere, methane is about 25 times, like it's radiative efficiency as it's termed is about 25 times more than CO2. Hmm. And that's on a molecule-per-molecule molecule right, basis. Right, yeah. um, and so that's not to do with what the... That's not exactly what this exchange rate is. It just happens to be around the same number. Hmm. Um, but um, it... Yeah, so definitely, if you've got some methane in the atmosphere, you are better off if it quickly would turn to CO2. Right. Um, <laughs> I suppose. And then there's, there's all sorts of complications... Also, like some methane, say methane from cows or wetlands or something like that, biogenic methane, we call it. The methane originally comes from that whatever organism it is taking in some CO2 from the atmosphere to start with. Right. So it's like a, it's a bit of a cycle. So part of the biogeochemical cycles, you've taken a CO2 from the atmosphere, it does some stuff in the organism. Um, yeah. 
you know, to do with its living and, you know, I'm not a biologist, you know, no, no, respiration and all those different things. Yeah. No, I, um, I'm happy treating animals as black boxes. Yeah, so yeah, like a spherical cow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it takes in a CO2, it emits uh, a CH4, a methane, um, and then eventually that methane goes back to CO2. Right. So it's kind of like this temporary thing. And these things are accounted for in, a, in some of the metrics. So it's temporarily, radiatively worse than it yeah. used to be. Uh, yeah. If you track, you know, yeah. from, if you consider that one thing. And it yeah. started out as CO2, became yeah. methane, which is more potent yeah. in a radiative sense, and then goes back to being CO2. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And then, I mean, if it's fossil methane, obviously that comes from under the ground, so that's a bit worse because it's not a temporary thing. It's adding a new carbon into the atmosphere. Yeah, new molecules into the atmosphere that were buried, mm-hmm. yeah, that were locked away. Um, yeah, so the, uh, that's it. I hadn't thought about it that way before. Yeah, so that that's an interesting point. Uh, and, like, the work that I've been focusing on is really using uh, a new method for... a kind of uh, making a CO2 equivalence from methane or other short-lived forcings. Um, so you can do it for mm. you know other greenhouse gases that are short-lived, so which you, reflects things better. How do you deal with that timescale? And that's part of what part of the problem, right? Is like yeah, and that's that's why it's not really been solved um, adequately because um, we obvious to you, you can't solve it by using a single number, a single exchange rate. Yeah. Um, so what we do um, is use a... So instead of comparing a pulse with a pulse, so the traditional methods will say a pulse, you know, a single emission, a one-off emission of methane is equivalent to a one-off emission of CO2 of some magnitude. Instead of doing that, which can't, um, can't be equated in terms of the warming over time, you have to kind of... The traditional way it's done, you integrate the rate of forcing over a time period. So it is comparing on some equivalence basis, but not doesn't take into account the different effects over time. And it's not directly related to temperature at any, uh, you know, it, it just doesn't... If, if you're trying to um, adjust your greenhouse gas emissions to achieve a temperature goal, it doesn't really stack up because hmm. um, it's not a metric that um, relates to temperature. So... Um, what we do is we look at the change in the emission rate of methane because a increase in the emission rate of methane that is sustained over time is equivalent to a pulse of CO2. Hmm. So I'll explain that a bit. So if you emit... Do you mind if we back up a second? So I was, yeah. just, I was getting this mental picture of... Um, so if you imagine the impact of carbon dioxide... You put some in the atmosphere and it stays up in the atmosphere yeah. for however long. And one of the ways you could quantify the impact of that would be to look at the extra infrared radiation that you get down here at the surface mm-hmm. because of that CO2 molecule and integrate that over its whole lifetime, like add up that so, total. Yeah, so the... And then the uh, well, where I was going with that is like yeah. that might give you the total energy, but it doesn't yeah. tell you about you know kind of when that energy went yeah. into the climate system and yeah. where. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what, so typically global warming potential is used, um, GWP, and it's often, most often used over 100 years. So you Mm -hmm. do that, you look at the energy imbalance over, 
that whole hundred year period and you integrate it over the whole hundred year period. Mm. Um, Even though it might stay in the atmosphere longer than that or shorter than so that. So yeah, and so when you so for GWP of methane, you look at that for methane and you look at it for CO two, and it's the ratio of methane to CO two. Mm. So for the methane, you get most of the the warming in the first decade, two decades, mm-hmm. and then it really tails off CO two. It just because the CO two stays in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, just stays flat over the whole period. So it's really time sensitive. So why do we use GWP 100? Uh, no reason. It could <laughs> be GWP anything. Mm. Um, it was pretty arbitrary, the choice yeah. of 100 years, because we like, because we have 10 fingers, basically. <laughs> Somebody um, needed to make a choice and they, they made it, they just made it. And, you know. Right. So what yeah. happened in back in the history of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Tr- Climate Change, when they first introduced the concept of GWP, they presented GWP, I think they presented 20 years, 100 years and 500 years. Mm. Um, and ultimately, and they said, this is this metric, you know, this is what it does. It illustrates the problems inherent with trying to do this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then sometime down the line, the UNFCCC, so the UN. Um, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change did the Kyoto Protocol and they adopted GWP 100. Hmm. Um, I'm not exactly sure precisely why, um, but it was, I mean, it's a, it is a yeah. useful mechanism. You need something. It's well defined. Um, I mean, it, it doesn't tell you the whole story, but it, yeah. is, a, it is a thing you can define. And yeah. you can say, well, keep, it, keep in mind that this isn't the whole story, but yeah. if you define GWP yeah. this way, here are the implications. Yeah, and yeah. it can work... You know, if it works for your purposes, it, if it will achieve your goals, um, then fine. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you're aware of its limitations and you don't use it for something kind of... Try and use it for something that's not really appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that's basically what's happened. Because mm-hmm. it's had some kind of rubber stamp of approval, it's then been used for everything. <laughs> oh. um, and it kind of is becoming a little bit unstuck now that we're entering a phase where we're trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions there are plans to curb them in the next few decades we you know with the paris agreement we need to reduce emissions to co2 emissions to net zero um by mid-century approximately um and so now that there's a lot more plans for actually reducing greenhouse gas emissions, we're changing the the regime, as it were, uh, and actually using an inappropriate metric is going to become more um, more apparent that it's doing mm. the wrong thing. Yeah, there's there's I implications, think. right, and it, it's yeah. actually pretty important ones because it yeah. it, it affects or uh, it, it could affect how you know government structure their programs and how governments approach you know their yeah. emission reductions and yeah and that's what um i'm concerned about i suppose is that if it's used if the traditional methods using gwp 100 are used to inform decisions that and you know lead to the wrong decisions being right. made for the goal yeah um so we've shown that you can um like under GWP 100, it can look like a particular um, emission scenario. It looks like it's going to lead to warming, but actually it's going to lead to cooling. Um, because for methane, 
so we can go back to where we uh, backed up a bit now. Uh, so we've got the idea of the traditional way of doing it, but the way that you can fix it is not to equate a pulse of methane with a pulse of CO2, but to say that a step change in the emission rate of methane is equivalent to a pulse of CO2. And that you can think of that in that you, you do a pulse of CO2 and that CO2 stays in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. That's not the case with methane. You have to keep emitting right, right. some methane if you want it to stay in the atmosphere to generate that similar kind of temperature profile. Um, and that's basically all it is. It's just saying instead of emitting all that methane at once in a pulse, you have to spread it out over 100 years. Yeah, so since methane you know, is, is chemically reactive and it goes away after some period, turns into a different molecule after some period. It's being removed from the atmosphere at some rate, and you're basically saying, well, let's imagine that we are just um, putting it into the atmosphere at that same rate to keep, yeah, step yeah. change, like you said, a sudden increase that you then don't turn off, basically, is what yeah. the step change is. Yeah. Know, it's just, uh, it's at some level, let's say five <laughs> arbitrary units, and then you increase mm. it to six, yeah. and you just leave it on, yeah. and you say, oh, that's... Increasing methane from five to six is like increasing CO two, just a little bit. You know, just just five, adding a know. single pulse of CO two. Yeah. At the beginning, because that CO two sticks around. Right. Uh, and so when you look at the, if you model it in a climate model, it looks. You know, you can see that the. So what happens is, I suppose, um, an easy way to think about it is you're changing by changing your emissions. Um, you're changing the amount of methane in the atmosphere mm -hmm. or CO2 in the atmosphere. And um, so it's like increasing the amount of methane in the atmosphere and keeping that increase steady over the 100 years. Keep pumping it in. Keep pumping yeah, it in. Yeah, to maintain, yeah. yeah. Um, Whereas you don't have to do that with CO2 because it's yeah, going to stick around anyway. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so so with quite a simple modification, to, so we still use the number for GWP100, but we essentially just kind of spread that methane emission out over the 100 years. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of um, not inventing a new metric as such, it's just applying it differently so that you can get... So, so then, so you use this metric and you get methane in the unit of CO2 equivalent. And now every unit of CO2 equivalent actually generates the same amount of warming, which wasn't the case right. before. Right. So before you could have emissions of methane CO2 equivalent that actually cause cooling when you actually look at what's really going mm. on if you modelled the scenario. Mm. Because the downward, if you, over time, if you decrease your methane emissions, um, you know, like, say you're decreasing your methane emissions 1% a year or 2% a year, you actually, that would lead to cooling because you're ending up with less methane in the atmosphere yeah. Um, because you're reducing your source and it's in such a dynamic yeah. kind of balance. That's right. Um, yeah, the greenhouse... so that, yeah, that would make cooling, but under yeah. the old metric, it would look like warming. Yeah, the greenhouse effect is not inherently bad. We do want some level <laughs> of the greenhouse effect. We just don't want it to yeah. keep increasing and increasing. Exactly, increasing yeah. So it's, it's, so it's more kind of, I guess it's, this is a way of, defining things more precisely if you if you've got a temperature target you want to care about you, know, you care about what warming we have between now and sometime in the future you don't want to create more warming than there is now you want to minimize the amount of warming and this because it relates emissions 
um, to warming, like there's a linear relationship between the, the CO2 equivalent emissions using this new method and the warming, you can actually account, you know, link emissions to warming. Mm. Um, whereas before, you'd add it all up and it, you wouldn't know, like if you added up all the CO2 equivalent emissions, there's not um, a unique number of, you know, if you count up that um, CO2 equivalent emissions using the old method, there wouldn't you wouldn't automatically be able to say, well, that is going to generate this much warming. Mm. Because it could be actually a whole range of different warmings, depending on what gases... Um, comprise that CO2 equivalent uh, because because it's not uh, it, it just doesn't link emissions to warming so so yeah there's potentially a lot of interesting stuff um, so that falls out to, from this yeah so that's the um, way to take the time scale out of it is to say yeah yeah let's just in terms of the the, the time scale let's try to make them equivalent in that way and it, so it brings so if you're familiar with the carbon budget concept, um, which has been in the, um, definitely the last IPCC report, I can't remember if it's in the one before, but you say any um, an emission of CO2 leads to a certain amount of warming, and it doesn't matter when we emit that CO2, if we emit it all today or if we spread out over the next 20 years mm. or 30 years, it'll still generate the same amount of warming, yep. pretty much. Um, and that's because CO2 is cumulative. It wants you emitted into the atmosphere largely it just stays there forever for our for our you know sort of policy time scales um there is an ocean sink and a land sink yeah so there might be questions of yeah so i mean like about half of the co2 i think is that has been emitted has ended up back in the the ocean or the biosphere um uh, isn't it thirds roughly is it thirds? Thirds of so. each, okay. I could be misremembering, but I want so to say it's So what like it is, is it's... it's um, Atmosphere, ocean, and land. It's a set, fairly sort of set relationship that doesn't really change. So any emission of CO2 you emit now, um, or yesterday, or, you know, 50 years ago, a certain proportion of it does go into these sinks, but the other proportion just doesn't. Yeah, um, yeah. And if, so it's a if the sinks stay the same, no, yeah. Hopefully well, the sinks don't get weaker. Right. Yeah. That's that's true. Um, but so that's a well-defined relationship. Um, and so every ton of CO two you emit, whether you emit it at whatever time, you know pretty well. Uh, you know, until we've hit some kind of tipping point in the climate system, you know that that's going to cause a certain amount of warming. And the new method. Uh, of accounting for other greenhouse gases, it allows them to be brought into that concept mm-hmm. too, because every you know CO two equivalent emitted using this GWP star, as we call it, um, leads to the same amount of warming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I interrupted you a second because I was still on that. I was still curious about the definition, but you're mentioning some of the implications. Like, mm-hmm. so okay, so you've got this new metric or this new approach to treating future emissions mm. at this GWP star. And so what are some of the, because you don't, you don't necessarily run or you, you, you as a uh, group or researcher, you haven't mm. run like climate models under these different forcings, have you? Or is that, uh, are you kind of gearing up for a future uh, round um, of like IPCC well, style experiments or? So we do have, um, like I do run a simple climate model, okay. um, which 
it reproduces the the results from the CMIP five models. Okay. Um, oh, sorry, I wasn't sure if you. Yeah, so that. it's a is a well. I mean, if you use the metric, you don't need a model. But I've been looking at. I've been using the model to test the metric. If you mm. see what I mean? So we can see that um, you compare the different metrics that are out there, including our our own. Um, and when you say you don't need a model, though, does that does that mean you're assuming that like the Carbon, ocean carbon cycle won't really change, and the so the land so carbon the cycle won't really change. If you're interested in warming here at the surface, so the, um, the 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 utility of a metric is that people who don't want to run a model can do something to analyze their the emissions or emission scenarios, something like that. So, um, and you know they do that already. Um, using GWP 100 usually and so I've been looking at using this new um, metric the GWP star but also running the emissions in a simple climate model to look at the temperature response to demonstrate that using our new metric there is um, basically the CO2 equivalent emissions using the new metric are pretty much directly proportional to the temperature response. The sur yeah, surface much temperature. Sort of, uh, yeah, global mean surface temperature. Hmm. Yeah. Um, in the model. So I have been looking at... Sort of, so the model is a simple kind of parameterized model that um, you can put in... You know, you can modify the parameters and get a different response. So I have looked at the sensitivity to these different parameters because, you know within the CMIP5 models or the climate full climate models there's a range of different climate sensitivities and um, timescales of response and so you can look at um, how this varies um, by you know the, the, essentially the spread in the CMIP5 ensemble um, so you know we don't know the exact answer to what the climate's going to look like but we can look at the range in the model that kind of encompasses the spread in the models um, so and it's certainly an area of research is better constraining these these parameters like climate sensitivity. So the simple model is derived in some way from the CMIP suite? Uh, I'm trying to get a sense of what it looks like and how you um, like where it came from and how you interface with it and what the limits are in the simple or the simple model you mentioned. Yeah so you, um, it's it's been developed um, partly in, so I work with Miles Allen in Oxford and so he's kind of, I think it originated from him and his team, but it's the version that I've been using has been developed in Leeds with, um, Piers Forster mm -hmm. and Chris Smith, um, and probably other people up there too. Um, and so it's, so actually, coincidentally, Piers is talking at this this thing this afternoon. Yeah, he's coming to Bass this afternoon. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I can always ask him. But <laughs> essentially, um, you give it some emissions, and it solves the sort of. Well, actually, you can give it emissions, or you can give it forcing, and it spits out temperature and concentration of the greenhouse gases uh, and rate of forcing from each gas. Um, uh, it's, I guess, so the, it has certain parameters in it that you can choose. So it doesn't have to reproduce 
put the CMIP5 ensemble reproducer. So you can put in transient climate response, equilibrium climate sensitivity. Um, it's got l lifetimes of various gases in it. Um, it's, it's got some, there's a, there's like um, climate response timescales. So it's two timescales that it will respond on a short timescale, which represents the atmosphere and biosphere and shallow mixed layer of the ocean. Timescale about four years. And then there's a slow timescale where it responds over, well, the default is maybe close to 300 years or something um, for the deep ocean. Uh, so it's not a numerical model with a bunch of little grid boxes for individual no. parts of the ocean. Well, it might have you know. sort of two or something for like land and air or something. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I'm not actually. I just use this as a so you can get it on GitHub. Um, oh, yeah. So I haven't done any work on it, so I don't know about all the guts of the model actually, mm. um, which is a change for me. Like having used to be doing more modeling type work, now I've just kind of plugged it in and it works yeah. <laughs> so um so that's why i'm not giving a very great yeah. description well, of what it does that's all right no, i was just kind of curious but i think i've gotten a better sense of what sort of thing it is you know it's a it's not a mm -hmm. full numerical model where you're flexing heat and momentum from individual tiny no. grid boxes no it no no it's some, not a process-based model it has some alphas nice. and betas and yeah. things that have been derived yeah. from from the way that our big climate models yeah. work but i mean it does so it does the sort of Radiative forcing type calculations. Uh, so you, that's basically, I think, what it what it focuses on. Okay, and I guess the some of the sources of um, spread or uncertainty or error in that sort of treatment could be. I know I keep going back to it, but like we don't know what the carbon, the ocean carbon sink is no. going to do. You know, in response to if we throw a bunch more CO two in the atmosphere, I mean, like, we don't you know, actually entirely even know what it's doing now right yeah yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, that is certainly a really interesting area and i think for like uh if you want to think about what what if we you know we think up these different scenarios of what we can do to greenhouse gas emissions um we don't know what the long-term effects of those, of those scenarios are going to be. We can, I think we know pretty well what the short-term effects are because we've got lots of observations over this last, you know, historical period, recent historical period, and we understand what's going on. But we haven't had 300 years to observe um, after the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Um, so actually... And, and this is the whole question of the climate sensitivity, uh, you know, all these different things on the longer term. Ice sheets. Uh, we, yeah, what are the ice sheets going to do? We, yeah, there's there's lots of different feedbacks, but e even the things that aren't um, changing so much, just just knowing what what this deep the whole deep ocean, the role of the deep ocean is now. It's it's not very well understood. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of a, lo a large range in the kind of estimates of you know how much heat is taking up and things like that, which has uh, you know important consequences. There's a range, yeah. There's a range of estimates, but it's clear that it's a ton. <laughs> that it's I don't literally mean a ton. Obviously, <laughs> I mean um, that the ocean has taken up something like ninety percent of the yeah. extra heat added to the climate system mm -hmm. you know, since the industrial revolution and mm. uh and that's that's just an insane amount of thermal yeah. energy to consider 
Yeah, um, and but so as it continues responding and the heat sort of moves around the system and comes back into the atmosphere or whatever over time knowing exactly obviously we don't know exactly what's happening but the differences between how it could pan out within our range of understanding could have important difference you know it depends on how the climate's going to respond over the longer term um, which you know is just another factor i suppose that is Mm, so if we think about if we want to stabilize temperatures to well below two degrees forever um you know forever more for the next few centuries or whatever um that that can you know when you think slightly longer term then that's an important factor coming into it which yeah. we, at the moment we're you know it's it's less of a worry in that it's far further in the future (laughs) um but if you Mm. are thinking of sort of long-term strategies for what does like we know that co2 has to come down to zero there's Mm. no question about that um that is for sure but methane you know methane's emitted from a lot of agricultural processes so all all ruminants emit it um comes from manures as well um rice production and yeah. there's other sort of other parts of this like um so landfills and we're, stuff we're gonna we are going to emit some of that yeah right? and no, so that. questions about how much can we well you know how much do we want to limit it by you know what should we limit it to um it's obviously a a multi-faceted yeah. decision it's not just we need to decarbonize the energy system. I yeah. think everyone's on board with that. Um, it's like, we still need to feed people. <laughs> so, it's a really dumb question for me. A uh, really dumb question um, that no sh- such shows my... Um, <laughs> that's um, keep, keep uh, one of the one of the themes of the ologies podcast is uh keep asking uh, smart people stupid questions which <laughs> I, I think is, is really good it's really nice like don't don't feel embarrassed no, i think okay, that is know. really important because um i always used to feel very embarrassed about asking stupid questions but then as yeah. the further you get along you realize there's there's no shame in not knowing no. something because nobody knows everything so why why was I embarrassed to ask yeah. questions? That's right. Well, and you, you only live once, so uh, just just go ahead and ask yeah. whatever you're curious yeah. about. Um, and as long as you're not being intentionally cruel, I think you're fine. You yeah. know? <laughs> like that's the only that's that's probably the only realm you want to really stay away from <laughs> is being intentionally cruel <laughs> to someone. But um, but yeah, the dumb, my dumb question is okay. If, if uh, let's say we did manage to get carbon dioxide to zero, mm-hmm. but you know methane is still there and it's still potent. And the amount of methane is maybe increasing. Let's say we need more to feed more people, so we need to mm. you know, increase the amount of farmland. Is it a really dumb thought to say, let's try to get more uh, OH <laughs> in the atmosphere to take up to kind of oh. to turn the methane into CO two? Showing my lack of atmospheric chemistry well, practicality uh, sense here. So but, increasing the sink, right? Yeah. I mean, it's something to think about. Yeah. I'd say, um, I'm sure there's a. L- so that's my my gut reaction would be that it would be very difficult to do that. Mm. Uh, we don't know what's we don't really have a good idea of what the OH is and has been. Mm. It's really difficult to measure. Mm. It's very okay. short. It reacts with everything, yeah. um, and so 
so one thing would be kind of you try and do something you might actually totally fail right because yeah. um, geoengineering is tricky like that yeah because we don't really understand the climate system we might accidentally yeah, do, do something that's the opposite of what we intended yeah, to do yeah and um, I'm not I mean I guess yeah I don't know it's, it's something that is probably worth thinking about a lot more um, but it's especially with chemical reactions they always produce something don't they um mm-hmm. so it's not um it's not a simple question and it may with with things like this they may well cost quite a lot of energy to do um on a scale mm-hmm. so um yeah i'm not sure maybe um i mean there are some processes like uh like weathering that take can take co2 out of the atmosphere faster enhanced rock weathering i think it's mm-hmm. called um, normally that happens, just sort of, but it's like on a thousand, ten yeah, thousand, so, hundred thousand year time scale. So there are processes that do chemically take CO2 out of the atmosphere that you can speed up a bit mm. by adding some, I don't know what exactly, but you can add some some uh, charcoal or something, I think it's mm. something fairly um, acceptable, you know, that doesn't sound too scary to the, to, to the public at large. Um, so you can speed up these processes so it might be that there's something like that that could potentially um you know be a methane sink i'm not not really sure Mm. i'm not nothing that i can could think of but um yeah i guess so the the interesting thing with methane is um it's reasonably short-lived um for a well-mixed greenhouse gas uh and it's so the amount in the atmosphere is a balance between the sources and sinks right yep and we don't know what all the sources are. You know, we, we know what mm. where methane comes from, but we don't know the amount of methane coming out from each source yeah, around the globe. you don't have a detailed budget of... Um, no, it's very... Each term in the budget is pretty uncertain. Um, and the sinks are fairly uncertain as well. Um, mm. So it's a really tricky question uh, because we just don't know enough about what's going on now even so the trends in methane so what the one thing that we can measure is how much methane is in the atmosphere when we measure it um so we know that pretty well so that's well constrained so we know that um it's going up at a rate of uh however many parts per billion per year i actually can't remember off the top of my head the amount at the moment like 10 parts per billion a year or something like that i don't know um and it was going up um at a fast rate in the 1980s and into the early 90s Hmm. and it flattened off in the mid 90s uh and then it was looking pretty stable Hmm. so i think i'm assuming everyone was cheering back then i didn't even know what methane was probably back then but um like so that that seemed quite quite good maybe we tightened up all the leaks from natural gas mm, and right. you know we were making some progress and then it just started increasing again in about 2007 has been has been increasing marching upwards ever since like you know like never before do we have any hints of where that's coming we, from? we have lots of hints <laughs> but um every every study pretty much concludes something different because it looks at a different bit of evidence uh, and so it's not um well constrained uh so 
it may be a bit to do with the sink the oh sink that could be varying we don't know why but it could um it certainly could be to do with um increased anthropogenic activities like farming of, of cows uh, natural gas extraction like fracking in the u.s maybe um also it could be natural wetlands so like about half of the methane that's emitted is natural in source um so is that uh could it be that natural wetlands are changing i mean they change all the time a lot of the time they're seasonal they you know say in the arctic they freeze in the winter and they thaw in the summer so is is the climate changing a bit that you know these yeah. these natural systems are changing a bit because that could be a runaway i mean not not well not runaway mm. that's too strong but that could there be is a, a feedback, feedback loop there yeah there is yeah of, yeah this, if you melt yeah more of the arctic yeah or up near the arctic that that could release more methane. yeah and because that methane is um biogenic so it's um microbes mm. as the temperature increases from like a few degrees to a few more degrees above zero they'll become more active and produce more methane. Um, so there's, Amplifying the yeah. warming potential of, yeah. of the species that are passing through them, the chemical species. Yeah, yeah. So it's not, um, well, like, we haven't figured it out. Um, there is loads of work going on with this kind of, um, to try and understand this question. Like, yeah. And I'm actually, so it was, I was working on that before, well, like when I was working in Cambridge, um, and I'm going to rejoin a project to do some field work in mm. Uganda, actually, next oh, year, wow. which is going to be really mm. interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so trying to just get many more measurements and of other things apart from just methane. So you can look at the carbon isotopes in the methane, which tell you something about whether it's a biogenic source or a natural gas source or forest fire source or something. Um, and measure other, you can measure other stuff as well that might be emitted concurrently with um like fossil fuel methane but not with biogenic methane mm. so you can start doing kind of fingerprinting type um analyses to try and figure out where it's come from so the uh field work will that involve are there aircraft flights mm. involved with it yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's doing more of the mission science as we call it very grandly um on mm. the the FAM aircraft, which is like the UK research mm-hmm. aircraft, the main one. Um, yeah, we talked about it with uh, Alex Archibald. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we are flying over wetlands in Uganda um, and Lake Victoria. So lakes can also be a source. Um, and there's some other work going on at the same time while it's out there on... Um, I think there might be a Met Office project as well at the same time, um, looking at... I guess similar similar things because it'll have the same instrument fit on it. Can't, um, I mean, uh, I've heard kind of in passing that one hypothesis for um, I'm, I'm going to struggle to remember any specifics here, but you know, occasionally you hear about mm. like a large, uh, like a village having like a lot of people die suddenly. Oh yeah, near a lake. Yeah, yeah. And one of the ideas is that well, maybe, and it's it's yeah. hard to track this stuff you know once it's happened yeah. and the methane kind of dissipates you yeah. can't then go back and measure it necessarily right but yeah you, that, that's one hypothesis for how something like that might happen is that well maybe there was just a sudden you know yeah. huge methane leak and i think a some big blob of it also co2 <laughs> mm. actually i'm pretty sure um some similar instances have been kind of attributed to co2 being released because mm. it's 
obviously we can't <laughs> just if, if the air's sort of saturated with well it's got loads of co2 in it then we can't breathe as well <laughs> yeah uh, yeah that's, that's scary to think that just a giant lake could yeah. suddenly emit a lot of methane or carbon dioxide and basically yeah. suffocate you yeah yeah I mean, it looks like it's it's relatively rare, or yeah, you know, or we we as a species would, <laughs> would have learned to stay away from lakes at yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, no, point. I, I, it's sort of yeah, presumably it's sort of a geological kind of process. So hmm. they happen pretty slowly, um, and therefore infrequently. Yeah, it's a, infrequently in terms of yeah. At some point, there's some reason for a giant methane bubble to get yeah. released. A yeah. shifting of rock somewhere that happens in just the right way over yeah. A, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, because if it comes out slowly, then it's no problem. Yeah. Um, it just has to, it's only an issue for breathing. <laughs> it all comes out really, really fast. Yeah. So no, normally it will come out slowly. I'm picturing like a whole alarm system. You know, you could have continuous <laughs> methane monitoring in a lake, you know, like, you know, down I mean, that would be great. And, you, know, you know, atmospheric no. scientists would love that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> brilliant so you could it could be a safety thing you yeah know, like especially if, if it's in a lake where it happened recently you could yeah. like well we're, we're sell it as a think, safety thing and yeah use it oh hey this is a um nurk is big about the overseas development or the developing countries you know okay. support these yeah. days right so yeah maybe so we, we should put in for a continuous methane recorder in a yeah. remote lake somewhere yeah a, <laughs> yeah above a remote lake. i mean that would be so so that is the exact kind of measurements you can do a really good job about characterizing the sources hmm. and it's exactly the kind of thing that's really hard to get because it's expensive to do hmm. a continuous measurement yeah. for a year more than one year you know there's a number of sites around the world um but they're you know on the scale of a particular lake or a particular wetland you know there's not that many um locally so do you ever use the little yeah. eddy covariance flex measurements they look yeah. like three balls that are like on the end of these sticks Pe- people do yeah know. there's tall there's like networks of tall towers that um do do those kind of flux measurements as yeah. well is that useful um, for methane too think yeah. about eddy, eddy flux of yeah. methane yeah small scale motions yeah yeah it definitely is so there's various different methods that people do use um uh, to to look at methane emissions you know the d- different independent methods. Yeah. yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, the the um the field work that you were talking about to get to go mm. go back out there. Do you do? Yeah. Have you done much of that in the past? Um, I know you've been on yeah. the, that aircraft before, right? Yeah, you've, you've flown. Yeah, so we did the work work in the Arctic over Arctic uh, wetlands looking for methane um, a few years ago. So went out there for three summers in a row um, for short campaigns to. To get try and get because um, because wetlands are very variable, um, they can vary from one year to the next or one week to the next. So we went to the same place three years in a row um, to try and get a bit of a you know characterize things over different years, um, and that was like that was really good actually. We got loads of really interesting results because uh, there was the aircraft which I was on, and there was kind of ground-based measurements as well so people went into the swamps and the wetlands and took these With chamber measurements so they you kind of have these chambers where you just put a, it's just like a plastic box basically uh onto the ground and you measure the methane in the air of that box and then like an hour later you measure it again like you take a sample from that 
set that self-contained box and you see how much additional methane there is over that time period so you look at a t- very very local scale um and there was um early covariance measurements as well uh, so that was really a nice project because it had a kind of a specific target and it was um we, we were able to repeat flights a few times so it wasn't just sort of one off so you get good so statistics you get good re- you know, reasonably you good know, for for field campaign work because so that's what suffers a lot i guess for field campaigns because mm. you you're not doing the same thing like a like a, a ground-based measurement it's just there all the time yeah. so that's great for statistics but we're just out there for fairly short periods so i guess we were trying to improve on that by going mm. multiple times to do the same flights um, and we did see a fairly consistent signal from the wetlands, yeah. so that was really good. It can be harder to sell that to funders, can't it? If you're like, mm. I need to go do the same thing every yeah. month, like yeah. over and over and over again, actually, to get good statistics. Yeah, on the link. yeah, the- yeah. It's a shame, really, <laughs> because that is like funding continuous measurements is really important. Um, you know, if you have that non-stop record, continuous record over time, you can look at trends, yeah. and that's really important. Um, Super important. So, you know, it's it's kind of I think I mean I'm not a measurement scientist, but I work with the measurement data that's generated, yeah. um, and it's it's I guess just frustrating that it's easier to get funding for a field campaign than it is to get for and setting up a new measurement site. Um, it's sometimes easier to get funding if you can make something sound new and exciting. And it's like, this has yeah. never been done before when yeah. actually maybe scientifically the thing you need is, no, we need to do what we were doing before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and also if you've got a specific question that you want to answer or, you know, you just want more data to answer a question better, you do know what you need to do. And it's not new and it's just doing more measurements or it's just applying the same method to a different data set or something. Yeah. And, like, it is frustrating, I think, that the usual source of funding that we get uh, want new innovations always, new breakthroughs. They don't want... They, they literally say that they don't want incremental science. Whatever that means. So I'm not sure who's supposed to be doing that incremental science. I assume it's... Maybe it's, like people who have permanent jobs already and can just do it <laughs> they need the money for it they yeah i know yeah exactly so it's bizarre and so like i mean i find it bizarre anyway and especially if you you know there are questions related to climate change which maybe you do just need to apply the same methods yeah um, to a very specific region or something. That's right. Like down in the ocean, you know, we have these sections, these repeated hydrographic sections mm-hmm. are called, where you you send a ship down to the same part of the ocean the same time of the year, and it takes a bunch of temperature and salinity measurements, mm-hmm. you know, along some line as part of this world ocean circulation experiment, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and and uh, ghost ship, uh, ghost ship is the is is a the more modern kind of version of that, but yeah, ghost ship is this. A collection of uh, of lines, basically, that are sort of internationally agreed upon. Mm. That, uh, that that there's an effort to try to occupy these lines at the same time every year, so that right. we will have a long term, yeah. you know, record of of how the ocean is changing. And you know, it's only kind of relatively recently that we've been able to start making statements about decadal changes in parts yeah. of the ocean because these programs, you know, like like WOS and Ghost Ship, have been going on for a couple of decades now so we can finally start to mm. say 
oh yeah, this this part of the Southern Ocean is warming up and getting saltier, and this part is getting fresher, and this part is yeah. uh, increasing. And but without those repeated measurements, which are are not sexy from a funding standpoint, they're not exciting. They're just like uh, so. How do they get gonna, um, kind of funded? Are they funded, or are they just kind of? They they are funded, but it's uh, I mean, that is part of what places like you know the British Antarctic Survey traditionally have mm. been about is. Mm. Um, taking those long-term measurements and mm. being a place that is, you know, kind of funded continuously to, to do that work. Mm. Um, is it getting harder or easier to fund that sort of long-term work? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I'd say that, um, I don't want to say too much and, and, and speak out of, mm. <laughs> out of line here, but like, um, I see some worrying signals that maybe it's getting harder to fund that long-term kind of monitoring mm. work, which you absolutely need to talk about decadal, trends and even year-to-year kind of changes um I, yeah, I see some worrying trends that it's maybe being deprioritized a little bit in favor mm-hmm. of things that are are uh, more kind of politically easier to sell or they're more exciting in some way mm-hmm. so I, I hope i'm wrong about that but yeah yeah i hope i'm just m- misperceiving things from yeah. my because I, I don't i don't see the whole picture you know yeah. I'm, I'm just a Mm-hmm. relatively low level scientist here you know i don't i don't see the yeah. big scale of it i don't have direct access to the you know nerf level conversations about what's happening so yeah they could just be from where i'm sitting yeah hmm. but um yes yeah, so I, I don't know how it's funded everywhere else but in the uk mm-hmm. you know places like bass have typically mm-hmm. been like where a lot of that repeat work happens yeah and um, and people do put in just short-term funding proposals where, where that's part of it, where they say, mm-hmm. well, we're going to do, go do a cruise and we're going to take these measurements. Oh, yeah, by the way, we're also going to swing by and do yeah. A23, which yeah. is the, the line that I got to be a part of um, okay. back, back when I did my one cruise. I'm not yeah. a field person primarily, but yeah. I got to... I was lucky enough to go one time, which was fun. How long were um, you away for? It was only a month. It was really short. Only a month. Years, you know, yeah. <laughs> so with the, I'm only going for a week to Uganda. Yeah. Uh, just and I was just like, can I make it a week and not ten days? Because I want to minimize time mm-hmm. away. Yeah. Because it's it's hard uh, to go away for a long time like that. Yeah, it was definitely um, a big thing for you know my wife and kid had to, yeah. and, and my wife was was and still is working at the time but yeah. you know, she had to somehow juggle school and she had to effectively be a single parent while yeah. i was on the other side of the planet yeah. which was hard <laughs> for her yeah. uh, but she did she did fine you know yeah like you know we we, we all step up right we're capable yeah of, oh yeah it's just that's that would not be a good long-term no. <laughs> situation yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and if she needed to go somewhere for a month i know i could like i could do that i could step up that'd be yeah. all right i could handle it it wouldn't be my most um productive month ever necessarily <laughs> but i could i could do it yeah um yeah so the um so where I, I know that you know we we met when you were here in cambridge mm. and you were running this cambridge center for climate science yeah which is this you know network of climate relevant researchers you know mm. here in, in town which was uh, created because there is no like climate department because it is an interdisciplinary problem right yeah. um, and you were the coordinator there um and well why don't we just where do you where do you if, if you don't mind we usually talk about kind of pathways you know like where you yeah. how you ended up where you are and what your kind of pathway yeah. into science look looks like and mm-hmm. um so where'd you where'd you grow yeah. up or where'd you like well, so I grew up in Colchester, yeah. which is 
in Essex, so it's not too far away from here. Really. No, it's pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Because even like the accent here, if you go into the county, I've been told is pretty similar to an Essex style. You know, like there's yeah, some, I mean some overlap. I mean, I I guess southeast. I don't really hear much of a difference. Uh, and it, and Colchester is quite north, so it's quite near the border of Suffolk. So it's not mm-hmm. like it's not London Essex. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. my right. my accent isn't sort of London Essex. No. Um, yeah. So went to school there, then went to university at UCL in London. Oh yeah. Um, which was great. Like it was. Really, uh, what were you studying there? Um, astrophysics. Oh, yeah, so it's a great department for astrophysics. Well, it was then, anyway. We must have talked about this at some point because that's where I started too. I was also, st- mm. I also started in astrophysics, yeah. Quite a, lot of, quite a lot of people started in astrophysics, ended up in climate. Ed Hawkins, also, yeah, yeah he did as yeah. well. Yeah, mm. so, um, what pulled you in that direction, you think? In the direction yeah. of astrophysics, yeah, or what, um, uh, just because I liked astronomy I guess mm. and cosmology mm-hmm. I was just interested in that kind of stuff um the very big and the very small so I thought particle physics was interesting mm. and like cosmology and the kind of crazy like concepts involved but I guess in both cases it's stuff that you can't really see so it was interesting because it was totally new and you know you had to study these things to order to even experience them that's right because they're you know just just so mind-bogglingly abstract. Yeah, you can't just use um, your intuition. You can't, yeah. just, you can't just be like, well, yeah, it's, it's I'm going to not... go with my gut here. Nope, your gut's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> your gut's totally wrong. Forget yeah, it. so that was fascinating, I guess. Um, but then I obviously didn't stick in that direction, um, probably because I thought, well, it's fascinating and amazing, but it is because it's so theoretical. I just kind of felt that wasn't really for me. Um, at the time, I just wasn't... The thing that makes yeah. it fascinating, you know, that abstractness also means it's so disconnected from your yeah. day-to-day life. Yeah. That it's, it's almost like this weird cathedral you go into mm. and you don't know how to relate that to, you know, just going mm. to Sainsbury's or something, like, it, if that makes sense, you know. What yeah, I, mean? I guess... the stuff we're doing... Oh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess for me, I've just felt I wasn't... Um, it's, it's all math because it's so abstract it's just all maths isn't it really or coding mm-hmm. <laughs> which actually I've ended up you know you, you end up back in yeah. that same place anyway but um, I kind of thought oh I, I want to do something that yeah that has uh, more concepts in it that you can relate to uh, in the you know classical sense yep. I suppose it's uh, a bit closer to our ex- experience uh, yeah, experiential uh, world you know, and that we'll have a shorter route to making an impact as well not that I was thinking in terms of impact as such but you know I thought well it is really fascinating astronomy and cosmology but it's it feels very far away to me and I can still read about it mm-hmm. and I can still gain that like fascination just by reading like new scientists <laughs> Mm. Um, and I feel like for me I wanted to do something that was not quite that far removed yeah let somebody um, else figure out dark matter I'm, yeah I'm glad yeah, there are people I, working on dark matter that's cool I love, yeah, let's, let's yeah like I've got a friend who he, you know he helped discover gravitational waves which I could I mocked him about for a decade or something um, is he on this like 1400 author yeah. paper the giant monster yeah, 1400 yeah, like author paper it's, it's impressive that he has had dedication since his PhD um you know, 
which he probably started in uh, 2002 or three or something like that. You know, it's, it's a long, a long haul. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, so For sure. I kind of I'm not making that up. And there was like a, a paper yeah, about gravity waves yeah, where they said, like, let's just put everyone yeah, on here. You know, <laughs> we've been working on it for like 15 years. Yeah. Let's just take everyone. <laughs> I heard a funny comment about that paper. Is like in the U.S., you write these uh, NSF biographies, and you're mm-hmm. supposed to put down all of your co-authors. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh no, my co-author list is now 46 pages long. <laughs> <'Cause> that's, <laughs> that's, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's bad enough when we do aircraft campaigns. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like twenty up, people, but uh, <laughs> and you need to put all the twenty people on. Well, I think you should do people who've been involved in it. Um, you know, if those measurements are integral to your work, mm. um, then the authors are on there. So, there. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you, yeah. Um, so I did my undergrad in astrophysics, and then, um, funnily enough, actually, just some another thread. My my fourth year project on that because it was a four year degree. Uh, was with someone called Nigel Meredith who works at Bass now. Right, <laughs> I don't. He does space physics. Yeah, yeah. So it was about like relativistic electrons in the magnetosphere. That's funny. Um, you ever run into him around here? Just, no, you know, I haven't. This. But I know he works here <laughs> yeah. now, um, which is just uh, coincidence. Uh, so yeah. So no, after that, I didn't even actually. I don't think I even really knew what a PhD was at that hmm. point. So I um, got a job <laughs> after my after my undergraduate. Um, Dave Monday said that the only thing he knew about a PhD when he finished undergrad was that it was three years long, but he didn't know right. anything else about <laughs> I didn't even know that. Like, I just knew there were like these PhD students who demonstrated the, you know, practical classes mm. and stuff. And, you know, they were varying degrees of helpful mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. um, as, a, as an undergrad. So, uh, yeah, I worked um, at the Institute of Physics for three years or so. Where, is um, that in London too? Yeah, it was um, it was in Great Portland Street or near Great Portland oh, Street, cool. um, uh, and they've moved now, I think, to near King's Cross. But it was. Did uh, you like living down there? Yeah, London? I mean, yeah. So I mean, we because I did my four year undergrad and then I worked for about three oh. years or so. So I lived in fairly central London mm. for like seven years or so. Um, yeah, it was great. Um, I mean, I wouldn't want to live there now, mm. but at the time, it was like really. Good. So there's so much to do. You know, you can just do do whatever, whatever you want. You can. There's something something for you. Um, mm. The museums are so great in London. I've always found that I'm curious about what it would be like to live in a really big city like that because I've yeah. never, you know, I've stayed for you know a week here, a week there, yeah. and um, we've 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 gotten the habit of getting Airbnbs down in London mm. and kind of living in a you know, yeah. a neighborhood yeah. for a week and it, I no, always feel great. like I'd be all right. I'd be okay here. You yeah. Know, I, I mean, I, like I loved it. it and I probably, I possibly still would hmm. love it. I mean, pollution is a bit of a an, an consideration, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the pollution is much lower now than it was when I first moved there. Hmm. Um, and it is, you just have so much diversity like you know you can go out and we live in tower hamlets for quite a while and you know you can go to the markets and you can go and get a really good curry and it's um 
you know, there's just lots of different things you can just easily get yeah. just with walking distance or on the tube or on a bus. Ten pound note is just flying out of your pocket <laughs> as soon as you step out the door. Well, all you thing is you learn to know where to go. Like <laughs> mm. you can go, go to the market in Whitechapel and it's just like a regular market and you buy fruit and veg there and mm. get, I mean, maybe it's more expen- a lot more expensive now, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I guess you get to know you know, you don't always go to Borough Market where it is ludicrously expensive. Hmm. The, <laughs> um, the touristy one, huh? The... Um, I mean, it's great, but you, yeah, it was a bit harder on the wallet. Um, yeah. But yeah, you get, I guess you get to know the, the, those little sort of local secrets. Yeah. Um, and the museums are free, so you can pop into yeah. those whenever. Oh, I love you know. the museums, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So what were you up to at the Institute? Um, that was doing um, communications. Mm. So um, a mixture of like media communications and internal communications and like external stuff like going to conferences that the IOP, Institute of Physics, would run and do the exhibition stands and yeah. stuff like that, yeah. um, as well as kind of outreach type mm. stuff. So doing events like that at science festivals or, um, you know, with schools and hmm. stuff like that. So a real mixture, actually. Quite a, quite a mixed bag, um, depending Excuse on what was, what was going on um, at the time. But that was really fun. Like, I learned loads hmm. about, like, how the media works. and. Um, that sounds awesome. And it was really good, yeah. And I also like, this is going to sound weird, but I always like to hear about people who've managed to get jobs after their undergraduate because I didn't figure that out I I didn't want like I wanted to keep you know uh, things were going in a direction that it made sense for me to like you know do grad school and stuff yeah but I, I did try to apply for some stuff, and it yeah. just didn't go anywhere. So, so I always am like, oh, well, wow, it know. can, it can work. You can. Um, yeah, <laughs> Obviously I, it can. I just didn't have that experience. Yeah, it's funny. I don't know. Like, it's hard to, um, you know, you only have your own experience. So, mm-hmm. you know, you could have been very close to getting something and maybe. you wouldn't know. Or you could have been, I could have been very close to not getting it. Mm. It could have been maybe the first choice just decided to pass mm. because they got another another job. Um, it's it's kind of a funny one, but I guess um, they they so the Institute of Physics is qu- quite an unusual place. Obviously, there's not very many similar organisations that you could try and go for, but they apl- employ quite a lot of fresh grad, or at least they did back then. Hmm. Quite a lot of people were um, new graduates, pretty much who might have done physics, yeah. um, but were interested in doing something that's still kind of in the physics community, but not actually being, like, not staying in physics research. So, in in a sense, it was quite unusual to get a communications job straight after an astrophysics degree. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'd been the, the, the publicity person in the physics society. <laughs> I mm. don't know if that helped. As an undergrad? Um, yeah. Mm. You know, I made posters for the talks that we did. Yeah. <laughs> Probably didn't hurt. Um, yeah, I mean, so I think that you know that obviously shows an interest in the community yeah. and um, doing stuff for the community, which yeah. is what the Institute of Physics exists for, um, and I guess shows an interest in communicating, <laughs> which yeah. you know is probably all they needed. So that was okay, but it wasn't it wasn't a permanent thing for you because you, I decided you kind of, not to. I yeah. mean, I did at first. I you know, was very happy to mm. be in that field. But, and I did do, um, 
I did an evening class in public relations as well, actually, mm. um, and got a certificate, which I've since lost. <laughs> um, lost as in the physical thing, you don't know where it is, or it expired yeah, in some way? Uh, I don't know where it is. It must be probably in a box somewhere, yeah. or perhaps it didn't make a, a move <laughs> at some point. Or I might have... But it didn't I expire, yeah. so you still no, have yeah, it, whatever that yeah, means. Yeah, doesn't mean. um, your PhD probably Trump's supersedes it. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that was. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do through that whole time, and I, mm. until probably, the last less than a year before I started my PhD, I didn't really know that I wanted to do science again mm-hmm. um i was quite keen on staying in science communication maybe doing more on the writing side um like we had a we had a regular slot on a local bbc radio um a show where we talked about physics like every day on it um i wasn't the main person doing it though it was one of my colleagues but i would be her sort of stand in so there was loads of stuff that was really interesting and I was really enjoying. Um, but I suppose two things. One thing that I was still really interested in science and thought these... Because we a lot of the time we, I was communicating the work of someone else. Like we might do a press release about research in the, in the you know published in the Institute of Physics journals. And so there'd be really cool stuff. And, you know, I'm just like always talking about other people's really cool science. Um, and I guess the other thing was that science communication is actually a pretty popular destination for science graduates. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of really sort of, I guess, burgeoning a bit at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are people out there who've done the degree at Imperial in science communication and yeah. stuff. And <laughs> I just thought... How many jobs are there out there that are yes. really science communication? Well, yes. And I limited. felt that way about astrophysics too. I felt like right. astrophysics was, at least when I was studying it, because um, mm. I, I did I did a little bit of grad school in that direction, but I really started to get mm. the feeling like, you know, yeah. oh, this is a bit saturated. Yeah. And it's also saturated with uh, really hyper-competitive people who are probably workaholics. And yeah. So maybe it's not like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, so... I just kind of thought I probably want to do a PhD mm. uh, now that I know what one is. Because also, that doesn't rule me out from coming back. I figured yeah. that loads of the people who I was looking up to who were in doing really good science communication, they had PhDs already, especially the more senior people who might have come to it a bit later. And I just thought, it's not going to hurt me if I want to come back, yeah. I think. Um, so it's interesting, yeah, you've been able to float between these worlds of, you know, communication, science communication, doing the science, mm-hmm. um, creating networks, helping networks grow, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, networks of individuals. So you've gotten to see, um, in a big way, both the, you, you've gotten to see lots of different uh, human elements within, you know, how science works and how science yeah. gets yeah. out there into the world. And it's probably because I did that first job, I think, in... Um, communications because it's you know you get that experience early on and then when I've come into science I'm I'm sort of there from a sort of slightly different background to them probably the majority of PhD students and then researchers um, just from having that other seeing things from the other side so I've always been quite keen on 
you know, doing outreach work and various different types of communication. Um, and that's how I got into the more policy side as well, because I thought, you know, doing a placement in DEFRA would be really interesting, which I did. Um, and that got me interested more in the how is science used. Um, so, and that kind of links back to, you know, doing science that's more useful, more close to the real world, um, less abstract. So, used like, in a policy sense, yeah. Yeah. How, how do folks yeah. in government who need to put policies together, yeah, you know, actually use yeah. the papers we write? For yeah, example? yeah, and you know, in some cases they'll they'll fund research because there'll be questions that they need. So that is more of a route. When we were talking about funding earlier, it's mm. less of a blue skies research funding, and more, you know, how to <laughs> yeah. do something. We've got questions. We need this number. Yeah. Can somebody get us this number. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I guess I missed out the PhD, but I did, so my PhD was at the University of Reading mm-hmm. um, on long-range transport. Meteorology Yeah, meteorology yeah. department. Although I was kind of essentially a, sort of doing chemistry modelling, not, not, you know, to a chemist, I wasn't a chemist, but to a meteorologist, I guess I was doing chemistry because <laughs> I was looking at, um, you know, uh, a chemical a photochemical model using a photochemical model looking at transport of pollutants through the atmosphere and how chem you know how the chemistry changes the pollutants um and how other how the meteorology affects it too it's not just chemical reactions there's also obviously winds and uh, mixing and things like that different physical processes too um yeah and then i went to cambridge after that to an actual chemistry department where i <laughs> Learned a lot about chemistry um, that I didn't have any clue about before. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's easy to, like, because I've, I've got one paper in this global biogeochemical cycles. Yeah. And I've, I've learned just enough chemistry, you know, the mm-hmm. little carbonate chemistry part to do yeah. that. Yeah. And so I, I can relate to what you're talking about, about, no, yeah. I'm, I'm a physical, like, I'm a physical oceanographer who yeah. I, I was able to, you know, with, with you know, help kind of put yeah. my foot into this chemistry world a little bit and I'm glad yeah. I did and I, I would like to do more but mm. it's um like you said it, it doesn't make you a chemist like it doesn't yeah. you know, do no. a chem to a real to like a biogeochemistry <laughs> person yeah. I'm definitely you know nearly 100% physics yeah <laughs> you know? no I did I did start for a while because I was working on more um chemistry reactive chemistry stuff yeah. in in Cambridge at first um I did try by hand at proper chemistry modeling mm. um and it's tough mm. <laughs> um it's it's complicated it's messy there's so much going on um loads of different reactions yeah. lots um, of different species and time scales yeah, yeah and are they actually in contact with each other or not in the context of this transport model and, and yeah and even knowing what chemical reactions to include yes um is a huge complex question so i ended up well you know you could come down on one side and say "Mm, you add more complexity in terms of chemical reactions you're not necessarily making the answer any better Mm. you're just adding more uncertainty more complexity Mm. so keep it simple um that and and for someone who's essentially uh a a physicist that's appealing (laughs) Uh, yeah that sounds good yeah i like that um (laughs) let's keep it simple okay and yeah and so i guess i mean then i started working more on methane and so most of the time i spent really working on methane which is 
although it's you know in terms compared to co2 it's short-lived compared to all the um the air pollution type things like ozone and nitrous oxides it's really long-lived so it actually mm. you don't really do much chemistry on it right <laughs> so um move more into the physical transport of methane where it gets to in the atmosphere because when you're looking on the 10 day time scale from a source to a measurement mm. you know the chemistry doesn't really happen on that time scale for mm. methane so it's slower than that huh the, the whole oh reaction yeah because you yeah. said that was more like a couple a decade or two yeah kind of so that, that so you scale. don't need to model so much of what we ended up doing um in in cambridge was just transport modeling mm. and not doing any chemistry and i mm. was i have to say i was much happier mm. much more comfortable in that world that. yeah, it's like, yeah. Oh, i can see it and i can yeah, yeah. move from one grid box to another and yeah. there, there are weather systems yeah although actually i was i was mostly for that using a lagrangian model so in a sense it wasn't it wasn't grid boxes uh moving from grid box to grid yeah. box it was particles just moving on their own following particles own around yeah yeah you update the positions of the particles based on the velocities yeah 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 so that's uh yeah that yeah. i can understand so the uh, <laughs> yeah what what kind of what kind of problem were you looking at in the transport so um we were because it was all field campaign based mm. um we were taking measurements of methane in the atmosphere uh, and where we were observing more methane, the question was, where did that methane come from? So I used this uh, Lagrangian particle dispersion model. It's the name model, which is a Met Office model. The name is name. Na- the name. Name, is name. <laughs> name is name. It's just called name. N-A-M-E. It's not even supposed to stand for anything or it's like numerical <laughs> atmospheric <laughs> model. Of, yeah. You know, they've made up some something to vaguely fit it it's, uh, it's clever it, it does it feels a little bit like somewhere there was a form somebody was filling in and it was just well, so the know, real name. the real historical backstory was that it was um nuclear something or other so it was the, oh. the acronym was about nuke so i think it was developed after chernobyl and mm. so the original um reason for it was to track nuclear fallout mm. But they don't, because now that's a very small component of what it's used for. They didn't want to have nuclear in the name. Right. So they just call it name and they, um, hmm. you know, backfitted, I think, an acronym to go with it. Um, hmm. Anyway, that's, I believe, the the sort of the the, the history of the yeah. name. It reminds the name me of the, uh, there was a, a Scottish bank that threatened to just change its name like back during the independence referendum for Scotland, right? There was, right. was it TSB. This is that. Does that stand the, for? The, am I remembering that right? The Scottish Bank. They threatened uh, to just move to England and change their name to TSB. And like, no, it doesn't mean what it used to stand <laughs> for anymore. It's just going to be TSB. We're going to move down to England. I didn't. Hear I vaguely that. remember that. But uh, so you're using using name to move yeah. some particles around. Yeah. So you, in the you um, basically you can run the model backwards in time. So you say we've got a measurement at this location at this time. Where's the air come from? So you represent the air motions by these particles, uh, theoretical particles, I suppose, and then you just track them backwards. And so you can look at where the wind has essentially brought that methane from. And we also have an idea of where, like, so say methane uh, is emitted from different sources. So then I could combine the emissions maps with the transport 
and say, hey, this is what the model thinks we should be observing. Um, and so using that kind of method, you can estimate, well, how good your emissions inventory is, your emissions map is, um, and also identify, you know, if we've seen a plume of methane. So, for example, we saw methane, a, a, this plume of methane over the um, Arctic Ocean, where's it come from it's just you know in the middle of nowhere it's not like we're flying over a source it's come from a long way away and we could track it back using the model uh to to russian wetland areas mm. and that's something that was really interesting because we can't just fly over to russia and take mm. some measurements just like that you know you yeah. have to get a lot of permissions to fly anywhere yeah. um and it would be especially difficult to go to russia especially as we were <laughs> So we're also measuring you know, methane, but also methane isotopes. So then, you know, the moment you mention isotopes, then everyone gets suspicious. Oh. <laughs> um, but so we were allowed... So one, one thing that was quite good with that one, we could measure the carbon isotopes in the methane as well, which tells you something about the source. And they that um, indicated a wetland source as well. So two independent methods showing a wetland source as the, um, you know, the source of that plume. So that was... Um, that was an interesting one that we did. Um, and that's that method. Like, and that uh, is it. The permafrost, and as the permafrost thaws, you can get additional. Um, is it related to that? Well, the process? the the, um, the areas that we uh, think that that came from were just seasonal wetland areas. So in the winter they're frozen, in the summer they're thawed. Right. Okay. Um, but if you were to have changes to permafrost that made it seasonally thawed then you know those mm. emissions would be changing in response to that mm. okay so then you're at chemistry for your phd and then you stuck around there for a bit and uh, so, you know, so the oh sorry post- I, I meant uh, red, reading for your reading for, reading for your phd is what i meant yeah. to say and then you came over to cambridge yeah yeah um and you stuck around there for a bit mm. and the job at oxford martin came up at some point and yeah. So you you and uh, you didn't have to physically move, right? Because you were able, you you live in the you, same place. You just commute yeah, in the opposite I commute, direction. Yeah, I commute in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a bit further. Yeah, it's handy um, for the the problem of you know if you don't want to move with your family all the time, hmm. that makes it quite convenient. Although, it, so the flip side of that is that I'm always commuting. Yeah. <laughs> This part um, of England is okay for that, isn't it? You could yeah. you could feasibly pick somewhere and yeah. apply for jobs in London, Oxford, Cambridge, yeah. and probably you know keep, do okay and keep things rolling yeah. along without having to uproot your family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So it was one reason, I guess, to choose this kind of area. I mean, you've heard from my my history. I haven't moved from the southeast of England <laughs> ever. Well, not since I was a child. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's quite a good high density kind of place of yeah. cities, you know? That's so, right. yeah. So you can make a Doxford. London would probably be fine, but expensive for the Expen- train fare. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's, I, I don't go into Oxford every day by any mm. stretch of the imagination. So it's not too bad. So you can work remotely a bit too. You don't have to. Yeah. Figure. I'm a visitor in Cranfield University as well. Oh, right. Okay. Um, You've got a desk and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I can, I can work at home, I can work in Cranfield, I can work in Oxford. Um, I don't want to rush you, but I'm looking at the time and I, you know, when there's lunch to be had at some point. <laughs> and, uh, 
So I, uh, we usually kind of have a speed round at the end. Okay. <laughs> and it doesn't have to... When I say speed, I mean the, I'll, that I won't spend five minutes setting up a question like I usually do. I just <laughs> a quick <laughs> question, and then you should feel free to respond however you want. Okay. Um, so it's not like so, Mallet's Mallet. Which you possibly um, I haven't heard of that one. No, don't know. So in the 80s here, uh, there was this program. I can't remember what the whole program was called, but part of it was called Mallet's Mallet, where this mm. the children's TV presenter was called Timmy Mallet. Okay. And he had a big foam mallet. Right. And you kind of do some kind of... It was a word association game. Um, so it said something like, word association game, mustn't pause, mustn't hesitate. You sort of say one word and then the other person has to say another mm. word and just go back and forth until someone can't think of something to say. Mm. And then they're, they're out or they lose or something. I remember randomly wasting a lot of time as an undergrad with um, another undergrad student who we would play a version of that game, but we would try to think of a word that is really not related to. Like we would try to do the anti that. <laughs> like you say a word and then, okay, I'm going to try to think of a word. I'm going to try not. to get as far away from that word and concept as I can by that's some, you know. harder. It is hard. <laughs> it's it's um we sp- <laughs> we spent a lot of time torturing our brains doing that that sort of thing. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Just stretching our heads in some way, mm-hmm. I guess, was was useful. Um, maybe or maybe not. Maybe we were just bored. Uh, I, I don't know. We weren't bored. We were. Uh, well, who knows? I'm not going to try to figure <laughs> yeah, out why so. I did something over a decade ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, so for the the speed okay. round, just means I'm I'm speedy than you, okay. speedier than usual. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's, it's uh, I like to ask about what's something you've learned. Um, you know, you've had lots of different experiences in different places. What's something you've learned about research? You know, if you had some some takeaway or some insight into that and. Um, it can be it can be anything really, and it, it doesn't have to be. Don't don't feel like you don't have to have earth shattering revelations <laughs> here. You know that that's not the the point. The point is just to mm. get your sense of you know something you didn't know before you went down this path. Yeah, that, for, for scientific research. Yeah, just research well, in general. Yeah, I think that in you know if you're an early career scientist. And trying to remain a scientist. Mm. Probably it's very important to have well-defined questions and then well-defined answers that you can publish. Mm. So um, I guess I spent quite a lot of time not doing that. Um, And it was great. And I learned an awful lot. Um, But, you know, and I don't... I think just doing doing stuff, finding stuff out, figuring things out is great too. Um, but it's nice to be able to actually publish something at the end of it mm. um, rather than do a lot of work and then find it's not really coherent enough to publish mm. um, or you've lost interest or the funding tells you you have to be doing something else really. Mm. Um, and what's quite nice is to have to think about questions more well-defined to start with. And that can be really difficult, probably. Like, it was, you know, I never really did it at first. Um, and it depends on what subject you're looking at. But if you are able to, you know, as well as doing your far-ranging curiosity, just do whatever it takes you, to have a pretty well-defined question that you can 
answer mm. and write into a paper. Mm. <laughs> um, something that you, you know, feel like, whichever way this goes, I'll be able to say something about this. Yeah, so, mm. and I, that's that's kind of nice to do and is definitely a more efficient way of doing research. I, mm. I wouldn't suggest that you you would... It's good to only do that. Yeah. But it's definitely something to have um, on the go, uh, you know, so that then you could get to the end of a year and think, actually, I can, I can write this up. Yeah. Do so you um, think you think these people, these people, with lots of papers, that they, that this is part of what they're doing? They get really yeah, good at whittling down the question. I think so. I think so. Um, because it's, and it depends on what field you're in. Because some modelling takes forever. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you can spend years doing model experiments um, easily, you know. So it's, and it's very easy to just, you know, develop the model, just just work and work and work and work on, on stuff that's interesting and important. But I just think if, and, and at the time, I had no idea how anyone got so many papers. And I just thought, it's insane, like... You know, it's unbelievable. I've got no hope. Mm. Um, but I think sort of having specific questions where you can do a simple, straightforward mm-hmm. experiment to answer it. Um, it's like having a well-posed mathematical problem. Yeah. You know, you've drawn the boundaries of it yeah. very clearly. Yeah. And you don't know what the answer is going to be. And you don't even necessarily know exactly the right method to use. But you have mm-hmm. defined it such that yeah. you, you have a... F- feeling of how to proceed yeah but it's not just a big open field yeah that's it that way that's a good way of describing i think because often it's easy to just have the big open field or stamp it and just play Mm. um but if you constrain something quite yeah you know reasonably narrowly then you know you can still play within that area but you actually get to where you want to be yeah and and thinking about the summer students that i've supervised um they've all been good they've all been fine Mm. but the ones that have been the most um successful by that metric Mm. of like producing something at the end of it have Mm. been the ones where i've been able to define the question really well and have a really clear end goal Mm. like um you know one of them was uh so matt meslov uh, out at scripts they wanted a freshwater input file for their model Mm -hmm. to show where the melt uh, iceberg sorry iceberg calving and melt and then ice um, shelf melt where that fresh water was going into the ocean Mm -hmm. because they they had a simple representation that was a little outdated Mm -hmm. and so and i also knew that there was a more up-to-date product of of uh, iceberg flux and Mm -hmm. that melt and so you know the, the very clear I can I can make a very clear objective out of that, right? I can, you know, say, okay, we need a new product mm. for freshwater flux. I've got the data right here. You know, I don't know exactly what method would, would be the best to, to make that new product, but I know what we need to do. Yeah. So I just handed yeah. my students, like, yeah, the, the raw materials <laughs> and a very specific objective, and it worked great, and it went yeah. super well. Yeah. And so I think I really like your your observation that like we should do that for ourselves too yeah <laughs> that we should you know, treat ourselves the same way we would treat you know having a really good summer student because you wouldn't yeah. want your summer student to show up and you just go like oh go play around with yeah. this and, like, you want to give them something yeah. reasonably concrete um it, it is great to, to play around but i think that, that is really important yeah mm. for for your own work 
you know the way a, a, an old professor of mine described it is he said well you need to have a uh, you know a, a portfolio of different projects mm-hmm. with different levels of risk yeah and your thought yeah. I, I can think of that in terms of risk like yeah. the, the, something you can define really well is probably not risky yeah. there's, there's probably a pathway for dealing with that mm. but if the edges of it are less clear um, or maybe more technically difficult mm. that might be riskier yeah. so maybe as a young scientist if you can develop a portfolio for yourself yeah of stuff that's low risk stuff that you are pretty sure is going to pay off and is well defined yeah but you also want to do the more blue sky stuff as, as yeah. well um yeah so if, if that's that's cool yeah. i like that um well something you learned about uh, academia in general just mm. zooming out to not just your research life but like um navigating the academic mm. waters <laughs> <laughs> your face says a lot but it's <laughs> it, it, it's uh doesn't translate to the podcast no. just yet <laughs> well I don't know it's, really it's, there's a lot I mean there's a lot I guess there's a lot to say about academia as a whole how so optimistic or pessimistic are you feeling right now you don't have to answer that but mm-hmm. what I'm saying is that that spectrum how optimistic or pessimistic one mm-hmm. is feeling I think can really color one's answer to that particular yeah. question of surviving in academia yeah so if you, I guess if you I mean, part of the reason for my previous answer was, I guess, in the context of surviving academia as a Mm. whole, um, because um, it is pretty, I'd say it's pretty difficult to survive. It's it's intense. Um, It's really, uh, yeah. And so having specific ways to try and up your chances if you you should you want to stay then you know i'm only quite late to to figure out these strategies i don't know you You can drive yourself so crazy with that stuff (laughs) at least for me i can drive myself insane if i if i start to go down that rabbit hole of like i need to optimize every metric (laughs) no there's no yeah lose my mind (laughs) and i so i've never taken that approach before yeah and i've just done stuff that's Mm -hmm. been interesting yeah and found my way somehow mostly um not being too worried about where I would end up um I suppose uh but now that I have a child things are a bit different because you know before there was a lot less risk associated with being out of a job or having a gap between postdoc contracts or something yeah um, that's right or even having to move you know like if it came down to it i could probably have moved or you know had a long distance relationship or something you yeah. can't do that when you've got a young child you, um, or you, you can well, move, i don't want to <laughs> you can move there's just more overhead and yeah it's, it um it can be rough on a kid yeah. maybe it could be good for them i don't know but it could be rough as well yeah. the transition can certainly be rough. yeah so i guess um so i've become more um i guess um attentive to career type stuff in the last mm. few years um but yeah i mean academia is i don't know it's some s- strange like you wouldn't in some sense i don't know why i want to stay in it <laughs> um let's put it like that <laughs> Um, like, what are we doing with our like, lives? I, I, 
<laughs> the only part of it I like is the actual work, um, mm-hmm. which is obviously why we're doing it because we enjoy doing the work yeah. and we think it's important work and it's worthwhile and yeah. we want to do it because yeah. you know the, we think we can do it yeah the stability can be terrible the lack of stability can yeah. be terrible is what i mean yeah and the, the the pay is low relative to how much time you have to invest in like yeah. getting into the field yeah um, it's 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 not like it's horrible, but you're not going to get rich. Like you're not. That's just not going to happen. You know. Yeah. You know, that yeah. Can't be your, yeah. It's definitely not your driving you know, factor, really. You know. Get rich, and you know, maybe we might not retire either. I don't know. <laughs> that, that might not happen. <laughs> Judging by observing professors, senior professors, yeah, you probably never yeah. retire. <laughs> yeah. I think some of them do it because they keep loving it, which I think. Um, you know, because they they, they enjoy yeah. what they're doing. Yeah, de- are they definitely? Uh, I think you know. But you know, for us, it might just be like, oh, that's just not an option. Yeah. <laughs> I'm being a little dark, but you know, <laughs> it's it's yeah. I mean, obviously, like I'm still trying to do it, so I'm obviously yeah. not too pessimistic. Yeah. No, yeah. let me say the flip side. Um, like my partner isn't in academia. Right. He did do a PhD. He did a bit of a postdoc. Mm. And he got out as soon as he could, hmm. um, essentially, because all the the only thing he liked about it was the science hmm. and wanting to do science, and everything else he hated. He didn't like any all the other. Uh, everything else was negative, so it was not worth it. The whole structure of it, um, it was just like it ruined science. Hmm. I would Good say, yeah. You know, from something you've always wanted to be for, for your whole childhood uh, to the reality, hmm. it's like, this is rubbish. <laughs> so, you know, you basically have to, you know, the bad has to, can't outweigh the good, otherwise you're going to just leave. And so, hmm. you know, somehow for me, the good outweighs the bad. Hmm. Um, maybe because I've, you know, you've got to be, so maybe you have to have that optimistic um attitude that something will come up it'll work out you know because there isn't really any guarantee that it will no but i mean to be fair so uh i'm i'm stealing this from somewhere that i i heard it so i can't quite remember where i heard it i think it was jim carrey talking in an interview and he said um something along the lines of say well because i think he had an experience where his dad was like a fairly straight-laced person, like a real mm-hmm. professional person, and yeah. I forget what, but he lost his, his job, and just yeah. and it just derailed everything. Yeah. And he said that um, they, that that helped him realize at a young age, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you can you can do everything you know right, quote unquote, and you yeah. can go into a stable profession, yeah. and you can you know work hard and you know yeah. make a name for yourself, and you can still fail. All of yeah. that can still fall apart. Yeah. He's like, so you might as well fail doing something you want to yeah. do. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. As opposed to failing doing something that you maybe feel lukewarm about. (laughs) I would agree with that. And I guess I've always thought that if I failed to get another contract, well, I've enjoyed myself up till now. Yeah. Um, And I wouldn't trade it in for a stable job that, you know, you know, I wouldn't trade it in for having gone into a profession and now I would be a more senior person being paid more. Like, what I'm... I've no regrets about it. No, I don't care that um, much about that. But then the only thing, and so up until having a kid, then fine, you know, I know that I'll work something out. But then you have all these added responsibilities that 
have only now made me more anxious about these kind of things, which is pretty oh. tedious, I'll be honest. Like, I'm not really interested in... Like, me and my partner, we would both joke that the other one has to get a really good job <laughs> so that so that you could, you know, not bother with the really mm. good job. Um, unfortunately, now I seem to be fighting for, uh, you know, really good job meaning permanent job. Yeah, or, yeah. Or more than two-year job. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, permanent or at least one where your your institute has your back and your institute is like, I'm on board, I'm I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. stay stay here. We want to keep you. Yeah, that's uh, that's tricky. If you work at Oxford or Cambridge, I have to say, very difficult to get a job like that. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's true. Very competitive. Um, it it is, and the funding landscape looks different in different places, and different places have different levels of anxiety about the future and what they think mm. things are going to look like. And you know, they have they have institutes have their own scale on that optimism versus pessimism yeah. Uh, yeah. range that we're talking about. But yeah, you mentioned the the terror the, the you know having a kid and like mm. I've never had the, this I've never understood this level of just just terror until my kid showed up like i'm like it's scary right you it's like yeah like oh my what gosh if, like this is what if i can't find another job at the end of my contract yeah. this small uh, person needs food <laughs> yeah like the food you know probably can deal with we have family nearby but okay. the mortgage repayment so we've recently bought a house mm. it's just like that's pretty scary mm. yeah yeah um you know or it would be the same for rent you know you've got to find that money so therefore you have to have some stashed away for that eventuality that you well, don't have funding for a few months or longer. Yeah, and good luck stashing some away on an you know on an academic salary. It's not it's not trivial at all. No, <laughs> no that's it's, that's tricky. It's yeah, um, but it's yeah, it's it's terrifying sometimes having having a kid. But but you know the, the weird thing is like, I mean to be fair, folks who work in the private sector. I mean, those jobs can evaporate. Oh, and, yeah, and some, totally. sometimes yeah. with really short notice. Like, yeah. oh, by the way, the company's gone bankrupt uh, yeah. and you got another two weeks. <laughs> like, yeah, no, that, that's that's certainly true. And even, like, I know people... So, I mean, Cranfield University recently restructured hmm. and it just got, you know, things got changed up and some people who were lecturers, you know, they were made redundant. Yeah, that's, so, that's you know, so getting a lectureship isn't you know often they aren't permanent anyway but even one that seemed relatively secure just just evaporates yeah i mean it Mm. wasn't a few weeks it was yeah they had quite a lot of notice Mm. and they did get redundancy but still you know stability nothing's nothing's there forever stability is an illusion yeah (laughs) Yeah, don't don't yeah don't get too locked into the 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 fantasy that whatever you're doing now that it's going to continue for yeah well that's the what so I guess we one reason for shying away from having a mortgage <laughs> is to minimize these risks mm. of yeah. you know but but we I guess we've ended up getting getting one now so it just adds that extra yeah. it's, and it's yeah I don't but, know I guess that's just But renting forever is also stressful that's also you know that's... we we weren't exactly renting we used to live on a boat mm. So, yeah, so you told me about it, that. Yeah, yeah. So that was one way of minimising expenditure. It's you know you do have a bit, le- a little bit less outgoings than living in a house. Hmm. Um, so it 
it kind of mitigates against mm-hmm. that possibly you know so so if I'm out of a job it doesn't matter too much because my my overheads are low um, yeah. and so that's that was the approach to dealing with this um contractual uncertainty so how, how was that what was that experience like? oh it was great like yeah, we loved it and it's quite sad to sort of leave that behind oh. but it's some people some people do it with kids multiple kids um it's tight on space mm-hmm. when you have kids like you know adults don't require as much stuff or we didn't require as much stuff yeah <laughs> when you're sort of just drowning in big toys um and, and then there's i guess there was the space and then there was the issue of not just space for stuff but space for each other mm-hmm. um and safety as well yeah. just until they can swim right. so when they're in that intermediate period of being able to quite easily they she would be able to get into the water <laughs> if she so wished <laughs> um but you know wouldn't mm. be able to swim <laughs> that's kind of like okay no probably literally everything around where you're living is a death trap of like yeah potential death trap yeah and i mean (laughs) it's kind of fine in a way but then they get to the age where you want them to be able to do stuff independently Mm, you don't want to have to enclose them the whole time or have your eye on them at the whole time because you know she'd be perfectly safe um playing on her own in a garden yeah so it kind of was the right time was there something you learned about outreach outreach i think well i guess there's a few things that are quite important one thing is to understand your audience Mm -hmm. the person you're talking to or you know who you're uh, designing the event for or whatever so to to really try and understand what they're interested in um or what they want or just you know you don't just have this stock lecture that just mm-hmm. is information you know giving out so you need to be responsive i think to the audience because that really helps with how they respond to it like that's going to be a community that's got to be a conversation of some sort as well yeah yeah mm-hmm. so i think that's quite an important key for a lot of audience you know they they want to be interested in it right you need yeah. to make them interested in it so so actually having a conversation proper conversation is um, really important. And now I can't remember what the other thing I was going to say was. It'll come back. Yeah, it'll come back. Well, something about, what about writing? What's something you learned about writing? Mm. Maybe we'll lump presenting in there as well, you know, writing yeah. and presenting, giving talks and stuff. And I mean, the obvious thing is not to use jargon, but that, and that gets more difficult as time goes on hmm. because the more you get deeper into science, the more jargon you use. Yeah. And it is hard. And I even discovered, yeah. so moving to Oxford, and so working, what I work on now is, although, like, I still work a lot on methane, it's a completely different um, field, really. You know, it's a completely li- different literature, a different field of people working mm, on yeah, it. Yeah. Almost very little overlap, really, um, between the different communities and the jargon, <laughs> also. Mm. Um, so I rediscovered how difficult jargon is um for sure and so yeah that's a really important one i think for any kind of spoken or written communication just keep it simple yeah yeah try to say things really simply yeah i remember um i was a judge for um some student presentations at georgia tech Mm -hmm. and well one of them 
you know, th these were supposed to be kind of very general science talks from the students. Mm -hmm. And one student was, uh, you know, seemed to be a really good student. He seemed to be really on top of what he was, was doing. But I couldn't really tell because every other word out of his mouth was just complete mm -hmm. chemistry jargon that I had no idea. I couldn't tell yeah. you the first thing about, <laughs> like, even at the end of the talk, I was like, I have no idea, like, what <laughs> most of those terms meant. And yeah. so I, you know, you, you've... <laughs> And it was, it was all anonymous feedback, right, from mm. the from the judges. So, you know, I, I, that that was my. Yeah. I gave I gave him that same advice. Yeah. I normally don't like to give advice, but that was literally that's literally your job when you're yeah. when you're judging something. So yeah. like, that was my comment. Is like, I didn't understand you. You used so yeah. much jargon. I had no idea what you were talking yeah. about. Yeah. So I think that's important is being being aware of your language. Yeah. And how being aware of how your audience because you have to take responsibility for that too of how your mm. audience is hearing what you're saying and are they picking up on what you're intending to yeah. put out there? Yeah. Mm. And it can be, you know, if you are working on communicating climate science to a wide audience, there's a lot of pitfalls that you can make there. Mm -hmm. A lot of difficulties like miscommunications that like you use one word. Yeah. Um, positive feedback is classic. Oh, positive feedback is it's really classic. classic yeah. yeah. Um, and uncertainty or yeah, cause, just because in most for most people positive feedback means good job you did a yeah. great job yeah but uh in in the climate system a positive yeah. feedback loop is one that is getting away from you yeah it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger yeah yeah uh, so it's a hor that's a horrible one actually yeah. because and i only you know i guess from being a scientist you you did i didn't twig straight away that that would ever hmm. be an issue but then yeah, then you hear someone say it, and well, and, you know, a, a member of the public say it, and then you realise they're talking about the opposite thing yeah. to what you're talking about, or you're just talking it, you know, across purposes. You said that was a positive feedback. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a horrible one. That's, uh, so you yeah. said if we melt all the ice in the Arctic, that'll be that'll a positive. Be that'll be great. Positive feedback. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's uh, think. Thanks. This has been a really good long chat, and I wanted to check in with you and make sure. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Or um, I hadn't really, because we kind of um, weren't. We only just decided to do this at the last moment. Mm, yeah. um, I didn't really even think about it. I think it's better uh, that way. I don't think you should. Yeah, think I think about that, it I think much. that's better. I think mm -hmm. that's definitely better because mm. otherwise, I probably would have. You know, you start thinking, oh, it'd be good to talk about this or that, mm. or, and then you just feel like not not like a normal conversation yeah. then it would be more presentational of like, yeah here's something i wanted to present yeah which is fine if somebody you know yeah. comes on and they do want to do that that's okay but yeah you know, I, 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 I like i like conversations yeah yeah no i, I think that's definitely uh, uh i'm glad that we just decided yeah let's just impact thanks. you and, and thanks for being flexible on the timing too and yeah. uh, no, that's, that's good that's fine. Um, I was trying to juggle appointments between Oxford and here and different, and it wasn't working out. But I think it all, it all, <laughs> the dust has settled now. I think yeah. I think things got locked in place where they where they needed to yeah. get locked in. Yeah. Since you were coming here anyway, that ended up being convenient. Yeah, so. definitely convenient. And I just thought, yeah, literally, I just need to get here a couple of hours earlier. So nice. I like to end with this uh, pair of questions about what's something you really don't like, it? and we've we've covered a lot of this already. So mm -hmm. it might just be the previous answers you've given, but like. Mm -hmm. What's something you really don't like about your job and what's something that you love about your job? 
or career path if you don't want to point a finger at a a specific (laughs) job that you have at the moment (laughs) yeah I guess uh I say I don't like having to write proposals Mm. to get funding Mm. um have to know what you're going to awful do. T- well, I, I mean, in a way, that's the good, good aspect of it, is to plan something, mm. you know, yeah, condense your ideas. That boundary drawing process into, we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, so that yeah. is actually really useful and at defining work. So that process I can get behind. And that, that, is, that is good. That's the good thing about it. Because you feel like you know what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the problem is you might not get funded. Right. Uh, and you might spend so long doing a proposal. Uh, and yes, okay, everyone recycles them if they don't get funded. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just takes so much time to do these things. It can be tedious too. And assuming everyone, you know, everyone who's trying to get a fellowship, let's say, has to apply for five of them before they get one, that's an awful lot of work for each mm-hmm. one to be got. So, kind of time. Um, yeah, sunk into especially that. as if some of them are like five pages, some ten pages, some yeah. are three pages. Um, it just feels like um, I don't know, like it takes an awful lot of time when you really would rather be working on your actual work. Yes, yeah, and it feels um, it feels um, scary too when you know that oh, I really need one of these to work if I'm gonna yeah. you know stay. Yeah. Some people manage to keep a really healthy, detached attitude and are just like, well, if this works, I'll stay in science, but if not, I'll just do something else. But my, yeah. I, I have such a poor sense of what those other things are that yeah. I, I'm not sure what those pathways look like. Yeah, that is one thing that I also suffer with, yeah. I think. I'm getting a bit more of an idea now. I'm doing more work with policy-type people mm-hmm. um, just from that particular area. And also, like I mentioned, doing a bit of consultancy uh you kind of meet other people and you see that they're asking for scientific research. So there is, you know, there are other areas. So firstly, to do similar type things or, you know, related type work, um, but also just meeting other people who do quite different things as well in different communities. Um, So that's helpful. And it sounds like we've kind of transitioned into the parts of your job that, that you like I like that we naturally, like, we didn't fall down a complaint mm. rabbit hole. We started transitioning to, like... Well, I mean, that, so that, I, actually, that whole process of funding is really one of the, I think, most things I dislike most about the structure right. of academia, right? right? So that yeah. goes back to one of your pr- previous questions. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I guess the positive thing is just that you do something interesting, you find out something new, you know, just, it's just really fun and like, it's just interesting being able to learn new stuff all the time. I guess that's learning new stuff all the time is one of the, I guess, defining features of this kind of work. If you were, I I couldn't really, like it'd be quite different doing a job where you're basically doing the same thing all the time. I mean, I know it's not really exactly doing the same thing all the time in Mm. most jobs and any job involving people is not going to be the same all the time. But uh, that's just really nice, the diversity of things that you're doing and thinking about. Yeah, I like that too, the variety. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Although I would have to say (laughs) when I was... Like I, when I was not working in science, so before my PhD, I guess I was a bit working in science, but when I wasn't trying to be a scientist... 
I felt like I had a lot more time to pursue stuff outside. So probably you did. Um, <laughs> so you know, you could you could read lots of. Uh, science books yeah. like popular science books uh, and because i'd have the brain power to do it i yeah. don't have that i don't have that brain power anymore because no, i've spent true. it all during the day so that's um kind of a like one thing yeah. that if i did get a job if i you know end up just getting a just a more more regular job just doing something that was um not research and that was just i don't know doing something in my where i live something i could find locally Maybe I'd just have a rejuvenated interest in everything else. Mm. Maybe so, yeah, all of your... Yeah, because I think, you know, if I can speak for us, and we, we have some background level of just, we're just curious about stuff. You know, mm. if I can speak for you, and, mm. like, we have some background level of just that, or we need to dig into something. Mm. And so maybe right now, like, our, our work takes up a lot of that energy. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I think you're right that maybe if if our work was keeping a different part of our brain and our our kind of uh, drive active, yeah. then maybe we'd turn our energy yeah. into like, just reading a bunch of different books and reading. A yeah, bunch of... I definitely would. I think, and then also on the sort of on the other side of climate science is you know actually doing something about climate. So I guess mm. there's oh, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of activity at the moment after the Paris Agreement about decarbonizing and changing behaviors and things like that yeah. so i mean one thing there may be opportunities to work in that area but then you could actually devote devote probably devote more of your energy to grassroots level stuff mm -hmm. community action so yeah. something that i've been sort of hearing a bit about recently with some of the policy related work i've been doing is you know how communities are taking action it's not this is not going to happen just by government saying right we're going to just to set this target go do it like it's it's at every level decisions have to be made and groups need to do something yeah, so um that's right. one thing that's really exciting i think is sort of community level grassroots level action um you know groups getting together and just doing stuff um to make their communities hmm. more sustainable really and then it trickles upwards uh, yeah. in some cases where then the local council gets interested in what they're doing and then they can develop schemes more locally uh, like with new housing developments and things like this so you know so then it sort of joins up at all the different areas which is really um you know it's it's gonna have to happen if we're gonna actually achieve the goals of paris agreement yeah, so that's a really sure. interesting area at the moment actually uh, you know, maybe nice. they've figured out my alternative route if, if if none of his funding comes through <laughs> next year yeah <laughs> you have to pay the bills somehow though in the in that mix and how does that generate mm, well, into yeah. how does that turn into like yeah. a yeah yeah um that's the maybe less obvious part and i guess yeah. that is you know for all of the of the problems in academia that is at least one part of the structure that you know when you get a job mm. it usually pays enough to where like you can do something like you can live somewhere and buy yeah. food and, and yeah, you know, clothes you know, and I stuff and you can don't have complaints you know, about <laughs> the amount of money that I earn but yeah it's it's yeah so I think it's perfect well I don't know maybe that's a whole separate thing to think about but you know we're not um we're, we're doing better than average I suppose is the 
Yeah. Well, there's this whole. It, it drives me a bit insane in the U.S. This this old um, kind of myth came back around that um, there's this uh, you know right wing politician who's you know, rattling around this idea that like oh yeah all these scientists are just in it for the money which is is it it's it's a sad thought to me because it's so ridiculously wrong and it's it's a it makes me angry because you know it's just so far off the mark i don't know anybody yeah. there's nobody in our field getting rich from this this is not this is not how science it do, works it it's not how um, climate science yeah. works no the mind boggles really i mean they must the people saying that kind of thing the the people in the media say that thing like the the politicians or whatever must know the truth surely they must. I I would hope so. Or they, are they are they projecting? They like can't yeah. Im, they can't imagine why anybody would do it. would do something like, you know unless they were making a lot of money from it. They, they like, literally can't imagine. It may, maybe there's that lack of imagination, but like it's just it's so um, you know if we wanted to make money, there are plenty of things we could do to make lots of money. Yeah, like people go into the city, they do like. Uh, like like coding like well, there's so many jobs in tech you know yeah. anyone doing computer modeling of the climate they could if they really wanted money they wouldn't be doing that yeah. they, they'd have gone to some startup or something they'd be working at facebook or something yeah. like that yeah. um or in the city like you know banking yeah well, you, you don't... You don't. <laughs> the mind boggles by how try, you would think science is lucrative. I tried this as a, as a tweet, and I'm still thinking about it, how, how does it work or not. But, yeah, you don't move to Germany for the Mexican food. You know, like, it's... <laughs> you, you might be able to find a little bit there, and it might be okay, but yeah. that's not, that's not yeah. logical. It's <laughs> not... You know, you yeah. don't move to Germany because you love Mexican food. Yeah. That is not... Like, there's, there's, you're not going to find a lot of it there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just enough to have it every now and again. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not absent. There is a little. No, yeah, of it, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. But it's maybe not that stable. Yeah. <laughs> whatever that means for food. Yeah, if, if that was actually your no. primary goal, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> then, then you've made a bad, bad move. You've, you've made a miscalculation, an yeah. error in an error in judgment. Yeah, that is really because it's so it's so easily debunked that myth. Yeah. Like, it just is a really frustrating one. <laughs> well, I think what's scary is those folks, you know, these folks know how to manipulate the news cycle. So they know if they yeah. say something like that yeah. to them, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. They know exactly. that their, their base will go, yeah, uh, yeah the whole, that sounds the right. The whole premise of fake news, mm. like, you just want to elicit a particular response. Yeah. They know so how you to, say whatever you need to say. They know how to, to manipulate people. They're really good at manipulating yeah. people. And people are falling for it left and right. And are enjoying the process and <laughs> are totally on board with these horrible people yeah. <laughs> who are, um, oh. yeah, so it's so bizarre. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but I just, um, yeah, you know, it's a big, it's a big rabbit hole to go down. I think. It is. But um, that particular myth, the, the myth of that scientists do it for the money is so bizarre to me. It's just so wrongheaded. Like, yeah, um, exactly. really is. I mean, I, I live in a tiny flat, you know, we, we need way more space. Like, we're just crammed. Mm. We're, like, on top of each other. There's way too mm. much stuff everywhere, you know, and, like, it's, it's way... But it's affordable. I can, you know, yeah. I can afford that flat. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. if I were in the, if I were in a lucrative field, I probably wouldn't cram my whole family into a tiny, yeah. <laughs> a tiny little yeah. flat in a village. I probably would pick something bigger. Yeah. You know? uh, it really is nuts. 
Yeah. How, how are you feeling? <laughs> yeah, okay. You good? Yeah. Yeah. Happy? Yeah, good. Yeah, cool. happy with the podcast, definitely. Cool, great. Wish my cold would disappear. Oh. <laughs> it didn't seem to... Not, it's not no, too bad, no. no it didn't no, seem it's... to make a big difference right at the moment, no. No, good. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks, Michelle. Yeah, thank you. That's yeah, been really fun. Yeah, for me too. I really enjoyed it. There you have it, my conversation with Dr. Michelle Kane. Again, you can find Dr. Kane on Twitter at Civil Talker, and you can also find her website at the Oxford Martin School, where you can view some videos that she has been uh, interviewed for, where she talks a little bit about uh, this paper and other issues. I uh, just might be able to get enough interviews together to where I don't have to take a break over the holidays, where I can keep releasing them probably producing them kind of in, in advance a little bit so uh yeah we are continuing on the two-week cycle on twitter you can follow the podcast at climate SciPod, and you can use that if you'd like to send me questions or suggestions maybe suggestions for potential guests or just things you would like to know about so uh yeah stay in touch thanks for downloading thanks for listening Uh, Please do rate and review if you don't mind. That does help the podcast out. And, uh, okay, we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.